When I was a little boy and told people I was going to do a Joker spoiler special, everyone laughed at me. Well, no one's laughing now. Hello, Pod. I'm Chris Hewitt, and welcome to the latest in our series of Empire Podcast spoiler specials. This one is dedicated to... Joker, the standalone movie that tells the origin of the clown prince of crime, Joaquin Phoenix's Arthur Fleck, or does it, etc., etc. Joining me to discuss the film in spoilerific detail are three of my finest colleagues of such lethal cunning. First up, why so serious, Ben Travis? I don't know. I'm not... (laughs) (laughs) I wasn't prepared for that question. You're sitting there with a clown face on. Disgraceful. All right. Well, welcome. Welcome to the podcast, Ben. Thank you. Second of all, where do you get those wonderful toys, Terry White? (laughs) (laughs) That would have been so much more appropriate for Ben. What? Why? Because he's a child. child. To be fair, my desk is littered with toys. Not all wonderful. Sex toys, maybe? No. 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 Just just because it's called a squirtle doesn't mean it's a sex toy. It's a Pokemon. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. Uh, But you must be getting loads of toys, Terry, now that you are with, with child. I am with child. Um, no toys yet. I've bought one pair of shoes um, and loads of vintage dresses for myself. <laughs> so this uh, this preparing for child birth yep. person this, thing. Are you kickstartering your, your baby toy collection? Is this what you want to do? <laughs> yes. If you want to donate anything to Terry's baby, then by all means, get in touch. Get in touch, you we'll know. get a campaign going. Yep. Old Nana dresses, shoes a size three, <laughs> adult... Um, feel free (laughs) and last but not least you've already heard him on the podcast but Alex Godfrey you are my number one guy and I welcome to the podcast Alex thanks very much for having me I'm wonderful Alex of course he co-wrote no you didn't co-write co-write it with (laughs) you are Scott Silver (laughs) yeah <laughs> Alex co wrote co-wrote the Empire cover feature for Joker along with himself. Yeah. Alex wrote one bit, Godfrey wrote the other. Yeah. That's right. <laughs> and put the two halves together the wrong way. Yes. Yeah, so you've been in a room with Wacky Phoenix and lived to tell the tale. Well done. Well done on that one. I'm Terry. Lived, but I'm scarred. <laughs> <laughs> Terry, well, where do you stand in this film? Oh, well, I think you know where I, I know where you stand, but I'm I establishing for the listener who may not know. On this film, because I did the Empire Review and I gave this film five stars. Five stars um, out of a possible? 74. <laughs> so work that out. Um, uh, I really loved this film and I actually saw it twice before I reviewed it. Uh, mainly because I knew a lot of the concerns that would come up about the film that I'm sure we will get into in detail in this nah, special. But who gives gloss. a fuck? That's glossy um, over the whole thing. And so, just... um, But I, I really loved it for many reasons. Direction, performance, score. I mean, yeah, I... Have a lot of love. All right. Good, good, good. And Ben Travis, where do you stand in this film? Were you, were you allowed to see this film? Did your parents let you out? Yeah, I got a special permission slip from Terry. Good. Um, <laughs> and yeah, I really liked it as well. I went in uh, after the discourse had already raged online for weeks, but still before it had actually come out. Um, and it, I found it really hard to watch it without that conversation raging in your head the entire oh, time. The discourse. But despite that, I really enjoyed it. I thought it was a really interesting um, stylistic take on a comic book movie uh-huh. and I don't know a, a, a sort of Joker movie by way of Scorsese yeah it was great alright well there we go but before we dig into the film uh, before we really get into it let's hear first from the man who made it Todd Phillips the film's co-writer genuine co-writer and uh, director 
who came into London recently to talk about the film, so we sent along John Nugent to have a good old spoiler-filled natter, and it is spoiler-filled. This whole podcast will be spoiler-filled. We'll be getting into it from the off, third out revelations, major happenings and all. So if you haven't seen Joker, then hide thee to your nearest multiplex, remedy the situation, and then come back to listen to the rest of this. Okay, seems fair. For the rest of you who have seen Joker, here's Todd Phillips. Enjoy. Todd Phillips, welcome to this very special Empire Podcast spoiler special for Joker. How are you, sir? Good. All right. Spoiler special. I've never done one of these. Okay. Yeah, we're going to get right into it. We're going to go right. into third act stuff from the start. We're going to go go deep. Okay. Um, I think, you know, we, we like to start with a big question that's on everyone's mind. Everyone who wants to know this Uh what happened to the director cameo of the creepy guy, Barry? <laughs> was he ever in the movie at any point? He was never approached to be in the film. Uh, he's hard to get. Yeah. And he mostly shows up in sexual scenarios, and there weren't a ton of them <laughs> in Joker, so he would have turned it down anyway. There were no gangbangs in this movie. That's right. Yeah. yeah. It's sort of his thing. <laughs> uh, but I guess the real big question that, that is, is this idea that Joker could be batman's half brother should we be calling him arthur wayne i mean you, it's sort of left ambiguously at the end because you see the the photo with the thomas wayne initials yeah yeah i mean we we, we like the idea of it obviously being ambiguous while this is a spoiler special i don't want to tell you what we think sure but i mainly because part of the fun is that question you know being out there like whoa what would that change if it's uh somehow blood relation to mm. Uh, Bruce Wayne, but do you do you have a definitive answer in your mind? Do you, do yes. You, okay, interesting. But I it's do. not one you you're willing to share today. Uh, not today. It's yeah. something in, in the future. We'll revisit the movie years from now, and mm-hmm. I'd love to do a podcast with you or whoever and yeah. talk about what we thought when we were writing, what Joaquin and I thought when we were making it, and kind of what uh, the editor and I thought when we were editing it. If that makes yeah. sense. Yeah. 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 Because it's a really fascinating sort of idea, and and having his story entwined with the with the Wayne family in all these different ways, um, you, are you sort of almost like subtly settling up setting up the conflict between Batman and Joker in a more personal way than we've we've seen before? Yeah, I don't know that we're setting up a conflict. I don't think we plan on making any movies, Joaquin sure. and I, where where this Joker meets that Bruce Wayne. We would just, um, you know. Part of the movie is a search for identity. Part of what the movie's about uh, is uh, this man's search for identity, this, his, his idea of searching to belong and to fit in somewhere. Um, so this idea of not knowing who his father is, you know, for the whole movie, uh, not knowing where he really came from, whether he was adopted, whether he was actually, you know, like w- what the story was, um, we thought that is another element in that search for identity. Mm. Because I know you, you know, you had sort of free reign to play with this, that that sort of wider comic book universe. You had no sort of uh, no strict rules on what you could do or couldn't do. Um, yeah, clearly. But uh, but well, yeah, exactly. <laughs> but it's really interesting that you've got the the death of the the Waynes in this. Movie, yeah, um, which is something we've seen before, but we've never had that. It's it's again directly linked to the Joker. I mean, he well, I think in Tim Burton's Batman didn't. Am I wrong? Oh, I'm going to get attacked if I'm wrong. But if I remember, didn't Jack Nicholson kill his parents? Oh, I think you're right. I, I think yeah. I'm right. It, yeah. It's been played with in comic book b- before yeah. and comic book films that he's loosely responsible or responsible mm. or 
in our case, inciting something that became responsible. Mm. Um, yeah, I don't know that that was a brand new idea, but that was something. You know, what was fun about the movie was that ability to keep one foot in the comic book universe mm. and one sort of larger footprint out. And, uh, you know, we, we, we kind of picked and chose where it was appropriate. Yeah. Because I know you've said that yeah, this is a, a sort of standalone movie. It's a sort of one and done thing. But did you have any thoughts about what this universe's Batman might turn out to be? I mean, given... Well, that's a great question, you know, and, and I wouldn't mind seeing that one day. I don't mm. know if it's, if it's me that would do it. But the idea of the Wayne family being um, uh, colored differently in this film and, and Gotham being painted with a different brush, what does a Batman look like that grew up in that mm. Gotham yeah. and that grew up with that father and that family, you mm. know? What's so fascinating about Arthur, he's such a, a broken man. I mean, he's so vulnerable. You've seen, like, previous Jokers, you see their laugh as a form of intimidation, but here it's a sign of his his illness, I guess. And his pain. And his pain. Yeah, yeah. I think, you know, one of the, you know, a lot of people keep talking about the influences of this movie, the inspirations, and, and clearly a lot of the 70s cinema was a big inspiration for us. But the biggest inspiration to start when we were writing was this silent film called The Man Who Laughed, which really does explore the idea of smiling through pain. Um, one of the first things I think that attracted Joaquin Phoenix to the role was that idea of the affliction of laughter and what does laughing look and sound like when it's coming from a place of pain. Mm. Um, and I don't know, that that always has sat with me, even over the years, making comedy films, knowing a lot of comedians, knowing a lot of... The, the knowing that the fact that a lot of their comedy comes from pain there's just a fine line as we say in the movie as has been said for many many years is between comedy and tragedy mm. you know but but to me the film is clearly a tragedy uh but we liked playing and walking that line yeah, I mean, any any time he laughed is it's almost painful to watch, isn't it? Because he's so like it's it's like his body crumples up. Yeah, I mean, to me, there now that we're speaking on a, a, a on a show that will, I guess, we're we're doing this before the movie came out, mm. but I imagine you're airing this after the movie's been out for yes, a little bit. We will, yeah. And so we could speak about you know there are definitely for me, I think there's like four distinct laughs in the movie hmm. the, the the laugh that comes from his affliction which is like you said when he's curled up and in pain and then there's the laugh he does when he wants to sort of fit in and be one of the guys yeah, yeah, which yeah. is this forced fake laugh yeah and then there is um the laugh of true uh i guess there's three there's the real the only time Arthur slash Joker really laughs for real in the movie, to me, is the very last scene in the movie when he's with the woman in Arkham Asylum, mm. Arkham State Hospital, and she's like, what's so funny? And he, and he basically says, you know, the, the last line in the movie is you wouldn't get, you wouldn't get it, talking yeah. about the joke. Yeah. That's his only genuine laugh as Arthur. I mean, that's, that's what, whether people see it as that or not, that, that's what we intended. Interesting. Yeah. So, he's, so that's not the affliction laugh, if that makes yeah, sense. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Oh, that's interesting. So it, at that point, he's he's at a position where he can... Well, at laugh. that point, he's free. Yeah. I mean, the movie is very much about a man who, like many people, like everybody, we walk around in life with a mask on. It's hard to be your true self. Mm. Like, you know, you're putting forward the person you want to put forward. 
but everyone is sort of wearing a mask. Only in taking off that mask and being fully free is he the Joker, which is ironic because obviously Joker actually has a mask on, so not to get too heady about it, but the (laughs) idea is only when he finally becomes joker is he fully free that that dance on the stairs at the end Hmm. that's the culmination that's his idea of freedom that's the one time in the movie he's fully free or from that time forward he's fully free in his mind Hmm. um and that laugh in that arkham state hospital is meant to represent that through laughter yeah and you see that as well uh when he's on the murray show and he's suddenly right he's got that confidence That's and right. he's more like relaxed and because uh, he's taken off the mask yeah, and he's yeah. living the life he feels like he was meant to be yeah. live which is that of a psychopath but okay <laughs> <laughs> yeah. at least he's free yeah at least he's free yeah um, I wanted to ask about his jokes because they are, you know, remarkably bad in some of them. <laughs> um, I want, did you play around with that at all? You Obviously, your background is in comedy. Did, yeah. did you have uh, sort of different jokes or even ones that, you know... No, I mean, it was stuff we came up with when we were writing and, and it was about that. And of mm. course, you know, I've, again, I've been friends with a lot of stand-up comics in New York and L.A., I've seen a lot of stand-up comics do badly. There's nothing like that feeling. Even yeah, yeah. stand-up comics will tell you they relish in that feeling sometimes of fully flopping. and There's just <laughs> nothing like it, and it helps them get a thicker skin and, and get better at their craft. But, uh, you know, I, I, I don't want to sound like too... Um, I don't want to sound like I'm philosophizing too much about the movie, but one of the, another, sort of, another sort of through line in the movie is, you know, this poor guy, Arthur, all he ever really wanted to do was be a comedian, Mm. but all he really is is a fucking clown. And that's a tough thing to face up to as, uh, you know, somebody who thinks they have a gift and they want to share with the world. Yeah, yeah. There's a lot of, like, broken dreams in in Gotham at that point. Yeah, exactly. I mean, in Gotham itself, the way we painted Gotham is is a city of... um, of broken dreams, so to say, a broken down city mm. and uh, a city on the brink. Yeah. And so can we talk about the the first time he kills anybody, the, the scene on the subway with the, the Wayne employees, yeah. um, which you sort of know is coming because we know this character and we know that he's been pushed to the edge and he's got a gun, but it's still incredibly shocking. And, uh, and it, it plays out like that. Was that a deliberate choice to make it feel really like overwhelmingly shocking well shocking isn't a word i would use but i but i'm i'm, I'm fine with it mm. the, the the deliberate choice was to make everything feel really real was to put real world stakes on violence i think we're so used to in movies seeing um violence handled in a cartoonish way with mm. very little um outcome very little um you know uh, I'm, i forgot the word but uh repercussions sure and we just thought if we're going to run everything in the movie through a realistic lens, whether it's Gotham, whether it's why he has a laugh, why he paints his face white, we wanted the violence to be painted with a realistic lens too. Um, so that scene is really the first time you see any real violence in the movie. And, and to me, it's a very interesting scene in tone and in when you know it's coming and how the audience responds to it because Arthur goes through four things in that in that scene. Arthur at first is kind of a jerk because these guys are accosting a woman on the subway. Mm. And he's actually not doing anything. He's just watching. And you're like, fucking Arthur, like, do something. Then it turns on to Arthur, and he's the victim. Um, 
and now you feel bad for Arthur. Then Arthur is acting in self-defense, and he kills a couple of these guys. Mm. And then Arthur becomes a predator and hunts down a guy that he didn't actually need to hunt down and yeah, kill. Yeah, yeah. And it's like these, in one scene, and it's why Joaquin is such a brilliant actor, you go through these four sort of versions of, of what he can do and can be. Yeah. Yeah, it's a brilliant scene. And, and the decision as well to make his victims, his first victims, that Wayne employees and that these like bankers. Yeah. So this sort of inadvertently sets off this movement, I guess. Yeah, yeah. Um, I, you know, the Joker's always been an agent of chaos, but yes. here he's kind of, it's almost by accident. That's what we kind of, you know, an accidental agent of chaos yeah. and then an accidental um, quote unquote hero to the disaffected at the right. end. He he says it on Murray. I'm not political. I'm not. He doesn't mean to be what he ended up being. Mm. But then when he's standing on the car at the end and he paints that bloody smile on his face, he's exactly where he was meant to be. Yeah. But he didn't. But he but he didn't do it intentionally. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, the yeah. accidental anti-hero. I don't know what you'd call yeah. it. Yeah. <laughs> do you so? Do you think by the end of the movie he has? Because for for most of the movie he's kind of a nihilist, right? He's sort mm -hmm. of he he as he says to Murray, I don't believe in anything. Yeah, and as he says to the social worker, you know, all I have are negative thoughts. Right. Yeah. You know. But but then do you think do you think he he develops a philosophy by the end of it? Do you think because previous jokers have been, I guess, anarchists, right? Do yeah. you think he has that that sort of mindset or not really? I think it. I think a little bit. I yeah. think at the end, I think that's what he gets swept into. He gets swept into that little movement that's mm. happening. And he again becomes their inadvertent leader. But he seems pretty comfortable there to me. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. There's that, yeah, the, the amazing shot when he's on the car. Yeah. And, and he's sort of, he's, it's almost like a performance, right? Yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, if you've noticed in the movie, you know, he does this thing with his arms as you can't see me, but I'm holding my arms out. And he does that on stage. He mm. does it in life. He does it in his dance, uh, in the bathroom. And then, of course, at the end, he does it on, on the top of that police car. And then he realizes, oh, this is where I'm supposed to be. Mm. Yeah. And I noticed, um, you know, some of the protesters, they had like resist signs and mm -hmm. anti-fascist signs. Um, you know, was there any like deliberate parallels with like the current movements of Antifa? And no, I mean, I think that's been around forever, that idea of sort mm -hmm. of um, questioning the powers that be. It wasn't resist as in today's movements, but I have a feeling those kind of sentiments and signs existed in other movements sure. because it's really about questioning the power structure. Uh, what what those signs represent. Um, so yeah, yeah. There's other things that people are picking up on, like the parallel maybe between Thomas Wayne and Donald Trump, or other people like that. Is yeah, that it's funny. I, I I that's not intentional, and I don't see it. Yeah. Um, in fact, somebody said to me at a screening, they see the parallels between Joker and Donald Trump more interesting than you'd ever see between. Uh, this businessman Thomas Wayne and Donald Trump, because Joker again became this unwitting leader. You know, mm. there are people that believe Donald Trump really didn't want to be president, didn't <laughs> want to end up where he yeah, is, yeah, yeah. and then he has these fervent followers sort yeah. of looking up to him. So somebody said that at a Q and A I did recently, and I thought that was a more interesting idea than oh, Thomas Wayne is Trump. You yeah, know? you've obviously you've mentioned like uh, King of Comedy and Taxi Driver as like big influences on this movie. Yeah, um, I also picked up a bit of a network. Oh, influence I mean, as you well. could pick up a lot. 
there's there's we were inspired by Netflix. We were inspired by I'm by, by Netflix. I said. <laughs> we were inspired by Network. Yeah. We were inspired by Dog Day Afternoon. Mm. There's a little bit of Death Wish in this movie. There's certainly King of Comedy, Taxi Driver. Mm. All these movies that I kind of grew up with when I was younger that I I didn't grow up because I was born in 1970. I wasn't watching those movies when I was six and seven, but I've (laughs) discovered them later as a teenager. And they really just helped shape what I love about movies, helped shape um, the things that I I responded to later, these these sort of deep dive character studies that don't get made as often today. So yeah, there's a, there's a lot of influences, I think all throughout the movie. Yeah. The, the, the network feeling I got, especially with when Murray obviously gets killed, that's, you know, quite an amazing moment. Um, I mean, what is it like to kill Do- Robert De Niro in your movie? That's a really excellent question because <laughs> uh, not many people have asked me that. And yeah. it was uh, intimidating to say the least. Yeah. I'm like, first of all, just, I don't want to see Robert De Niro get killed. <laughs> I love him more than anybody. He's my favorite actor of all time. Yeah. So it's not something I take lightly. And it was, um, yeah, it's a lot to, 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 to do that. Um, but, but De Niro understood what we were going for, understood the script was down. Obviously we didn't surprise him on the day (laughs) it was written in the script, but yeah, it is crazy. But, but back to what you were saying about network, because really what network is also about is the power of television. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's where you're headed. And, Mm. and, and our movie has a little bit of that too, that, that, that need for adulation, that need to be recognized Mm. and seen and to stop being invisible, which which so many people, uh, that's why they end up on television and whatever horrible reality shows or whatever it is that that need to feel like, you know, you're part of something. Yeah, and and how was I mean, is it is it intimidating giving directions to like, I mean, the world's greatest actor? Like- well, n- another excellent point. <laughs> it was intimidating to meet him and and to talk to him in the beginning. Um, because I'm such a fan and because mm. I know his movies, so many of his movies inside and out, I mean, truly probably remember them better than he does because when you yeah, do, yeah. I mean, how many times does he really watch that stuff? Probably not as much as I watch that stuff. <laughs> and, uh, so I had to get over that rather quickly. Yeah. And I did that before we started shooting just by meeting with him and hanging out and, and talking through stuff. Yeah. So by the time we got on set, you know, it wasn't lost on me that, oh my God, fucking, you know, <laughs> Jake LaMotta is sitting in that chair. Yeah. Uh, and and then I got Joaquin in the other chair. I mean, it was it was surreal yeah. for sure. But you get over it pretty quick. They're there to do their job. Um, but it's something I won't soon forget. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And and also this lovely idea that maybe this is Rupert from King of Comedy. Like, <laughs> right. His, his, this is later career. Is well, that was more of a wink and a nod. Of course, yeah. it's not Rupert, and no, it was no. never meant to be Rupert. Yeah. But it was a fun spin on. You know, I think a lot of people maybe. Maybe not the people that listen to a podcast like this, but certainly your average movie fan, if they've even heard of King of Comedy, they've probably not seen King of right. Comedy. It's a lesser known. It's a lesser known, yeah. overlooked Martin Scorsese picture that um, I is one of my one of my top ten movies of all time, and uh, uh, so I actually like that people are making the connection. I like that they're talking about King of Comedy because I can't tell you how many young reporters have come up to me and said, you know, to prepare for this interview, last night I watched King of Comedy and oh my yeah. God, that movie. And like, I, I like that it's kind of having a little bit of a second life. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, that's great. Um, I wanted to talk a little bit about uh, the Zazie Beats character, Sophie, mm-hmm. um, because her relationship with Arthur 
to begin with, I have to say, made me quite uncomfortable. You right. Know, she he like stalks her, and she seems kind of cool with that, and then yeah. you you realise that it's part of a delusion. Yeah. Um. I. I. How far did you push that? Were there any versions where it yeah. went further, or yes. like there were? Yeah. We've cut out some scenes that would have made you more uncomfortable. I really? promise. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Yeah. But uh, it was just—it's a fun thing to make a movie about a unreliable narrator who also is delusional. Mm. Um, because there are ways to look at this movie where you're going, oh, he's telling us this story. Yeah, he's yeah. telling us this story from the Arkham Asylum at the end of the movie. Mm. And I don't know how much of this story is true or is the way he's telling it. In other words, did he really get beat up by five little 12, 13-year-old kids for his sign? Or is he just make, saying that to make us feel bad for him? Yeah. There's so much delusion in the movie that you start questioning what's his angle on it and what is actually the truth. Do yeah. you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. I don't know. It's something we just had fun with. But yeah, the Zazi's character is uh, really um, a key, a key to the movie. And the, and the revelation in the movie is a key moment for people to kind of wake up and we we feel like we weren't hiding it we were very clear early on the first time you see robert de niro there's a bit of a fantasy fantasy slash delusion right, right. where arthur's in the audience and you know again it's arthur searching for a father figure a little bit it's arthur seeing a father figure in murray seeing a father figure in thomas wayne looking for that identity mm. yeah it's funny because we were talking about it in the office and um a couple of people weren't sure what was real and what wasn't like the the scene where um, Randall says he didn't give him the gun, you mm-hmm. know, and we were wondering, is that just him covering his tracks or, right. is, or is, or is that just a, you know, something that fabricated in Arthur's brain almost? Yeah. And again, I, I don't want to necessarily answer what's a delusion and what isn't sure. because I just think it takes the fun out of it. And it also is different for everybody. Yeah. You know, it's, it, there isn't necessarily a, oh no, no, that didn't happen. And da da da. It's, um, but to me, if I was watching it, I would think that's Randall covering his tracks for yeah, sure. Yeah. yeah, I think that was mine too. Yeah, as well. Yeah, but then this this straight jacket scene sort of epilogue at the end. Um, you know, what do we interpret from that? Like, could you read that the entire movie is potentially all in his head? Uh, you could, and like I said, some people have said that. Yeah. Um, again, I have a I have a firm view on it too, but. Um, yeah, you certainly could, um, you know, and then he starts singing That's Life and some people get their kick stomping on a dream. <laughs> There's a lot of ways to interpret that song to that moment as yeah. well or to the movie. Yeah, it's yeah, it's a really, it's another sort of something to chew on for the, yeah. for the end of the movie. Um, I'm almost out of time, but I know you said this is a, a, a standalone movie um, and you're not unlike, unlikely to return to it, but... Have you tossed around any ideas for a sequel? Have you and Joaquin like? Well, I had mentioned this the other day, and then it became a little bit of a thing. Where, 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 when you make a movie, sometimes there's a lot of downtime, mm. and we just talk about things. So Joaquin and I would constantly talk about a sequel on the set of it, but more as a joke. Like you know, what we could do, we could take him and da da da, or yeah. we could do this, but we've never really seriously discussed it, and still we haven't. Because we really always envision this as its own thing, standing mm-hmm. alone, and not getting mired down into the superhero story of it all. Because eventually, yeah. you've got to deal with a Batman, and eventually you've got to, and and that's just not been something that was interesting. But it, but it's 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 funny that where you leave it is, it's almost like he's not. 
the character's a criminal mastermind, but he's not that until the very end of the movie, right? Well, like, is our character a criminal mastermind? No, you mean the character of Joker in comics right. is a criminal, right? Yeah. He's certainly not that yet in our movie. Yeah. But I know what you mean. Like, he's edging wouldn't that, in that sequel direction. be then about getting right. into the becoming a crystal, criminal mastermind? Sure. Yeah, that's exactly the kind of stuff we would talk about. Yeah. Like, oh, the next one could be about that, you know, becoming that, even yeah. without Batman. You're absolutely right. Um, but no, it's just something we haven't discussed seriously. Yeah. I guess it would become a different movie then because it's not a character study if you're making it. Yeah, yeah, I guess so. Yeah. Beating up Batman. Right. right. <laughs> but, you know, we would love to see it. I, cool. It's a sequel I think a lot of people would be excited by. So. I really appreciate you guys doing this. Empire's been a, a, a great thing for us. They were the first people, I think, to see the movie yeah. crazily. Yeah. Um, I did a great piece with one of your writers. That's it was right. great. And, uh, yeah, so hopefully everybody enjoyed this. I appreciate you doing it. Well, we appreciate it too, Todd. Thank you so much for Thanks, your time. Man. It's been great. Okay, so that was Todd Phillips. And now it's time for us four goons to get into the movie. And uh, Terry, I want to start with you. And I want to start with um, you talking about these these issues, these problems that you were aware of. That's why you saw the film twice. Mm-hmm. Uh, what, what what are those issues? What are those problems? He said knowing the answer, but still we'll do ask anyway. <laughs> Excellent hypothetical question there, Chris. Um <laughs> So I knew when I saw this film, I saw it very, very early. Um, the discourse was not raging uh, that Ben Love described. The discourse. But I knew the discourse was a coming. And that's because I felt like there was quite a simple reading of this film, would, which would be that it's an apology for incels, that it's essentially a tribute and a lament for kind of disaffected white men in this world. Um, and that actually what this film did is glorified the plight of those men and showed great sympathy. Um, I could, I saw that reading coming down the line and I really, really, really did not agree with that reading at all. I think there's a um, massive difference between p- pity and sympathy. I think you pity this character, you pity Arthur. Um, lots of points your sympathy or any empathy you begin the film with erodes throughout the film and mm-hmm. you are in no um, doubt that this is about the making of a supervillain um, but people were kind of uh, I knew it would come to this is irresponsible this has been mm-hmm. made without thought of the consequences I think it was um, hyperbolic I think not all of it was um, said with a kind of a genuine feeling. I think some of the stuff that was whipped yeah. up, there was no real argument for. There is moral ambiguity and um, there is violence, though not on the scale that it's actually been claimed and there are far more films that are more violent than this that we can talk about. And it isn't an easy film and it has no easy answers, but I felt that a lot of the kind of takes thrown at it were very easy takes that actually didn't really engage with the film properly. A couple of things to pick up in there. Why is it hyperbolic and not hyperbolic when it is hyperbole <laughs> and not hyperbole? <laughs> That's the thing that, that left out of me immediately. Natasha Bedingfield calls it hyperbole in her does. great song, Unwritten. Mm-hmm. Thank you. What Thanks, Ben. Yeah. <laughs> but it's hyperbole. And yeah. I just want to, I, I just, I don't know if you have an answer for that or not, or, or whether it's just something that struck me uh, in the middle of that. Chris, I mean, it's the mysteries of the beautiful English language, and I'm not sure we will ever solve them. Not you and I. <laughs> is is the Hyper Bowl better than the Super Bowl? <laughs> well, did it you is. know Gary Glitter used to be used? His, I don't the know why song, you bring him into this. Because, we've, we've gone straight into the glitter. Okay. Because, <laughs> hang on, hang on. There is, there is relevance. All right. Because his song, obviously that's caused all the controversy, yep. um, was also used for many years 
as part of the um, NFL and the Super Bowl, yeah. and then they stopped using it when it became problematic. So well, not everybody stopped using it, apparently. Yes. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's, that's true. In fact, fuck it, let's get into it right away. Because I've got some stuff to pick up on uh, in what you said there as well. But uh, uh, a lot of people have been asking us. We have we have some listener questions. We will be delving into those uh, throughout the course of the show. But uh, a lot of people have been asking. And there's been an awful lot of talk online about the use of Gary Glitter's Rock and Roll Part 2 in this movie and where that came from and did we think Todd Phillips was aware of it. And I don't think that we knew. I couldn't pick that song out of a lineup, if I'm honest with you. And I don't walk around with Shazam on all the time. So I, when I saw the film, I didn't know it was a Gary Glitter song until the second time I saw it. So I don't think we knew, and I don't think that's uh, we didn't ask him about it. So I don't know what Todd Phillips' line on that is. But do you think that there's a little bit of mischievousness uh, there in using a song that is, quite frankly, by a notorious pedophile? Uh, or or do you think that he is he can claim innocence and maybe say that it's uh, it's a very, very famous song in the States, a very celebratory song in the States, or it was up until a certain point? I hope the latter... And I, I presume the latter. I just, Todd Phillips is provocative. As anyone who's seen Due Date will know. Right. But I, I just, I'd like to think um, he didn't know this because it would be, if he really did this as a wind-up, I think it would be disgusting. And I hope he didn't. I think he didn't. Yeah, that would be pretty bleak, right, as a, as a sort of kind of surefire controversial but, moment if he, if that is on purpose of that feels I don't, from what I've weird. read this is a staple piece of music for Americans in, in circumstances like you were saying Terry and I don't know I think is it different because it's America I don't think any British person would have used that song can I just say I I and it's the one thing that's given me real pause since it's become a yeah. conversation point. I'm kind of comfortable with everything else. This kind of is the bit I'm uncomfortable with because I, with the best will in the world, I do not believe a director or any of the crew involved with, you know, securing the rights to this song never didn't go Gary Glitter and understand... A Google search or a Bing search or, you know... I just... just and I look. so... And that is... You're right. I mean, that feels like trolling at the very least... And I find that really difficult. And that's the bit I've been struggling with recently because I just can't believe that nobody involved with the film noticed a Gary Glitter song yeah. all no. the way through production. Is his name known in America, though? I mean, but, but it's one of those things that's fairly, you, you know, you would think that someone, maybe that someone in his crew at some point might be a Brit who might be going, hang on, this guy's a convicted pedophile. We can't use this. So what are we doing? Let's just replace it with a different song. So then it becomes a question of, and again, we weren't able to ask him this, but it comes a question of intent. Yeah. Is there intent to use this? It's a pretty generic, big, riffy rock song. And if yeah. they're going like, oh, we need something that sounds big and loud and riffy, but is also period appropriate. There are so many big, like, riffy 70s songs that they could have pulled instead of this. If they wanted to give it that vibe. Yeah. Uh, as we were saying, sorry, it, it seems to have this context in the States that it doesn't really have here. But... Um, the way it's used in that scene is it's just supposed to be surely his sort of internal, the music that's playing in his head in this sort of triumphant yeah. moment that you could pick any other number of songs. That, like Terry said, surely someone along the line went, oh, that, that song that you want from mm -hmm. Thingy by Gary Glitter, Yeah, you, you want that one. I can't believe we went this, here this quickly. I had, this, was, <laughs> this was like 10th on my list of things to talk about. But If they, um, if they knew better. I, I think, to be honest, if, if it was going to give them the benefit of the doubt, I would say if Todd Phillips knew the history here, I would think maybe he might have gone, whatever. 
he's not a big deal over here, rather than let's do it to wind people up and to be a bit provocative. I just don't think he would have done that for that reason. Do it, you, though? It's a, I think it's a very provocative move. And I think even to say, oh, fuck it, nobody's going to really know the scale of who he is and his crimes, I just... I I find it really difficult to believe, you know, Warner mm. Brothers, the studio is a global studio that nobody involved at any point in the chain saw the name Gary Glitter, didn't know he's a convict, a very famous convicted paedophile. I mean, it is like the reality is that it's it's actually the perfect song for that moment when it when it kicked in and before I realized it was Gary Glitter. Yeah. It completely worked for me from a tone and from a storytelling perspective. And then afterwards, you're like, fuck, actually. It was Nick, De- Nick DeSemlian in our office, before it actually kicked off online, said, has nobody noticed that's a Gary Glitter song? And I think it's when he was looking at the soundtrack. Right, right, right. Hmm. But, but you will, as you said, there will have been a point where his name was attached to the track name. And so I think we can give people the benefit of the doubt. But I also think there's a reality when you're making a film... Even of a you know smaller budget, whatever than than those massive bombastic block, blockbusters, where somebody must have known, and there must have been a decision to use it. Uh, where I knew it from, I just double checked this is because um, I was oh that riff sounds really familiar to me, and it's because the KLF sampled it mm. uh, in yeah. Doctrine and the Tardis, and that's where I knew it from. I didn't know it as a, as a Gary Glitter song. Uh, secondly. Uh, it's been made very, very clear that Gary Glitter will in no way benefit financially from this. He will not receive any royalties has, from the song. Has it, though? Because I read it that, has. but since then I've read, actually, he might be. Oh, really? Yeah. Okay, well, in that case, that's that's unclear, but uh, I had read very strong denials that he would benefit financially yeah. from this song. I saw a follow-up article that's saying he might, after all, be getting some money. Okay, it's not a good look, or indeed sound. <laughs> Should we get back to incels? The <laughs> Let's back to the later topics. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Come friendly incels. Um, so yeah, so Terry, you, you were because there there was a school of thought, and I, I think it was quite a snobbish school of thought uh, from a, uh, the first barrage of critics who saw this film at the Venice Film Festival. That uh, that that reminded me a little bit. I recently I interviewed Spike Lee about Do the Right Thing in the thirtieth anniversary, and Spike Lee is still upset about the early reviews of that movie by people like David Denby and, you know, quite frankly, you know, white uh, upper middle class critics mm. who received that film in 1989 when it came out and said and wrote things like, this is going to incite riots, this is mm. going to start, this is going to incite violence across the country, people are going to be ripping up seats. Mm. Uh, and it's that very snobbish film critic thing of, I can handle this film psychologically, but you, the great unwashed, can't. Yeah. Which, which is, I, I, that always rubs me up the wrong way. People talking on behalf of other people, and these—it it, it concerns me all that talk because it's it, these things can, could maybe be a self-fulfilling prophecy. And there was no indication that anyone was going to do anything, and nothing has happened. Touchwood. And I, one of the big takedown reviews said that there is no way this film can be read as anything other than aspirational by the end of the film. And I don't see that. I don't get that at all because if you're not absolutely disgusted with that character at the end of the film if you're not repelled by him and what he's doing then you're already too far gone I, I think Terry picked it up perfectly w- with what she was saying before that it's the difference between pity and sympathy and when I was watching the film um, having already been embroiled in all of this discourse around it um, I was it was impossible not to try and be conscious of oh do, is it making me feel sympathetic towards this character and to what he's going to do that the the situation that he's in the the action that that drives him towards and actually i think it did 
stray for the majority of the part on 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 pity. He is a pitiful character. You you sort of feel bad for him in this sort of squalor that he's living in, but also he's he's you get why people avoid him. He's a strange guy. He's on the edge. Like I I don't think you would look at him and go like, oh yeah, I want to be that guy. Do you know what I mean? Like but, he's not got that heroic feeling to but that's, him. Yeah, I mean the whole the the whole way he's positioned as a character, he's he's outside of society. He's so far away from everybody else. Whether it's when he's in the stand-up club and he's kind of watching the comic to try and take notes for his own stand-up, and he's laughing at all the wrong moments. Yep. When everybody else isn't on the bus with the kid, when he tries to engage him, he is so outside of society. He doesn't function within it, and he is pitiful from the, from the beginning. Even when you have sympathy with him because he's being beaten up for kind of no fault of his own. Um, or is he? Well, mm. yes. Which we could say we'll, a lot, we'll, right? We'll, yeah, we'll, we'll get to that in, in detail. But it's as much, you know, it's a study of what happens after trauma, arguably. It's about austerity. It's about cuts to services. It's about a lack of understanding about around mental health. It's a critique of capitalism. I in no way viewed this as kind of, as I say, this lament to these disaffected men in society. And also, I just think it's a really dangerous conversation when we're saying there are only certain stories we can now tell on screen and only certain types of um, men or certain types of women that we can paint in any nuanced way whatsoever. There is ambiguity and texture in this film, and that's what makes him an interesting character. But by the time he becomes Joker, and there's a very specific point when he becomes a Joker, he is now a villain. You understand that. Just because there's a study of how he may have got there does not make it a manifesto for the incels, which is what it's been accused of being. I don't I don't see it as that myself. However, I do know people who do. I, I, I know someone someone I follow on Twitter. I won't I won't name them. Uh, but it's someone I follow on Twitter. Good guy, funny guy, insightful guy uh, who saw the film and tweeted, "Is it is it wrong that I wanted this? That I wanted to celebrate everything he does in this movie?" And I replied, "Going uh, yes, it is wrong." And he went, "Whoops! Oh well." Um, and then someone I was checking the replies to his tweet. And someone went, yeah, it was amazing when he killed those three guys in the tube. And then when he did his little dance afterwards, that was just pure bliss. And that sort of thing worries me. The fact that people can have that attitude and can take away that reading of the film, that they want to celebrate the fact that he kills pretty much everyone he meets, that he kills women, that he kills men, that, he, that he's just, you know, that he's by the end a full-blown psychopath. That does worry me to an extent. But is that the fault of filmmakers? No, of course not. Individual and, yeah, interpretation. Absolutely not. But, yeah, I, but it does concern me that there are people who are, who are, who are uh, reacting to the movie in that way. But my personal reading of it is it is not an incel apology. Um, although Todd Phillips, you know, he has a, a, a history, I'd say, if you look pretty much at all his films, they all explore sociopathic behavior to a degree. The Hangover trilogy, certainly. Mm. Um, the, even Due Date, Downey's character in that is a bit of a sociopath. War Dogs. Uh, even going all the way back to someone like Frank the Tank in, in Old School mm. uh, is a bit of a sociopath as well. So there's something there that's a thematic quality that runs through all of Todd Phillips' work. But for me, what he's doing in this movie, and you know, correct me if, if you think I'm wrong, is that he is actually, I think, stripping away or trying to strip away, and it's obviously not his fault whether if people are reacting to this movie in the way that he hasn't intended, but he's trying to strip away from me artifice and grandeur from the idea of what the Joker is. So he knows that people are going into this movie hero-worshipping the Joker, and they can't wait to see their guy on the big screen, singing, dancing, laughing, killing a whole bunch of people. And gradually he's saying throughout the movie, yes, there's pity uh, in Arthur, but also at the end he's saying, 
this is your hero? This guy, this pathetic, psychotic sad sack who sits around in his underpants and just indiscriminately kills people? That's your hero? Okay. That's what I think he's doing with this movie, ultimately. Yeah, I mean, arguably, most, if not all, of the other variations of the Joker on screen have been have glorified him more than this one, right? They're more fun. Mm. I mean, you think of um, Heath Ledger's performance, which is which is incredible. But there's also there's almost a a glamour to the mystery around him that he just sort of comes from nowhere and like he's so unknowable. That feels like a more engrossing sort of version of that character than like like you said this sad dude in his pants with his scrawny ribs yeah who goes on this sort of horrible killing spree that sort of grimly i don't know it feels like there's there's less romance to that than there is to to the oh no one knows where he came from and he's the clown prince of crime that feels like a bigger, grandiose sort of version of that character. Mm. Heath Ledger is cool in that film the whole mm. time. And Arthur Fleck is not, defiantly mm. not. And to, one of the first things, name drop, Todd Phillips said to me. <laughs> <laughs> so j- just to, to clarify that, and this, uh, what you're saying, that, that negative reaction yeah. or the positive reaction um, was not his intention at all. Mm. He, he said he wants to draw us into this world and this character and we are supposed to feel sympathy for him until we can't until we absolutely can't and then you're horrified by him absolutely so Film- that was the point I think filmmakers can't be held responsible for how people choose to misinterpret their films people will watch Taxi Driver and think that Travis Bickle is is the hero of that movie people will watch Glengarry Glen Ross and come away thinking mm-hmm. that Alec Baldwin's character is the hero of that movie and, and there's been many cases of that documented over the last few years so people are going to come to this movie and they're going to think that the Joker or Joker or Arthur or whatever he is is going to be the hero at the end of the movie that's not Todd Phillips' fault. And what I'm saying is I, I don't think that was his intention. And Alex, you know, you've, yeah. you've clarified that. Can I just say, I think there's also some snobbery around Todd Phillips as a director here. So a lot of the criticism I've heard, especially from um, other critics, is, oh, this film isn't as smart as it thinks he is. He's not as smart as he thinks he is. He's made He thinks he's made this cinematic masterpiece. This is the guy who did The Hangover. And I think the... The kind of thematic stuff you're talking about is really interesting, but where a lot of people have gone is, oh, this the guy. This is the guy who's done films about those type of men in more crude, crass human versions, yeah. and this is just the latest from him. And he thinks he's suddenly evolved into this much better, smarter filmmaker, but actually he's still Todd Phillips. And I really fucking hate all of that conversation around <laughs> it because it's just snobbery. It's just snobbery. Because if so this was a different filmmaker, I honestly think a lot of people would have had a different approach to it. You're gonna love. Of my it's King of Comedy made by someone who didn't quite understand King of Comedy land. There you go, you're that guy. You're that guy. <laughs> There's a lot of bro baggage with Todd Phillips. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there is. But he's also been evolving as a filmmaker over the last few years. I mean, you know, he's he he was hazed, and I think rightly so, for that dreadful "you can't be funny in this woke culture" comment that he made a few weeks ago. That did not uh, help. That didn't yeah. help. That really, really, really didn't help. But if you look at his movies, they've been becoming less funny, and most of that's been intentional <laughs> for the last over the last few years. The Hangover Three isn't a comedy The Hangover 3 it, I mean it's not even a good film necessarily but it's interesting and it's a thriller so The Hangover is more from this this mad sort of um, kind of dyspeptic kind of comedy uh, of, of things going wrong and then The Hangover 3 is pretty much a straight thriller with some comedy elements to it and and then there's War Dogs and then mm. and then there's this so he's been going in that direction slowly slowly leeching the comedy out of his movie to the point where we get a Joker movie that doesn't have any jokes he's definitely interested in bad people He's always done this from the start. But I mean, before 
Road Trip, which was his first feature, he made a documentary about Gigi Allen. Uh, Gigi Allen is, uh, was a rocker, a punk rocker in New York in the 1970s and 80s, and he is notorious for being just the worst person. I mean, he was in prison for the worst things, um, and then when he was on stage, he used to cut himself uh, profusely. He would, um, how can I put it, shit on stage and throw at people in the crowd. He would beat Yikes. people up. Um, genuinely the worst person. And Todd Phillips, when he was at film school in New York, NYU, I think, um, his thesis film was making a documentary about Gigi Allen, followed him around for a week or so, and just documented, actually, I think, became his last week before he died of an overdose. And off the back of that, he, he then made another documentary called Frat House, which is about a frat house. Mm -hmm. And so he's been doing, you know, he's been studying and doing character studies and portraits of terrible, terrible people for a long, long time. Now, obviously, he made that documentary when he was in his 20s, and he's grown up a lot since then, and I think he's evolved. Um, but I think... The Joker, this Joker film is just another, another exploration of him, by him, of awful masculinity. Because I, I think it is interesting seeing him sort of um, make these films about all these sort of toxic men to the point that, yeah. of course, I, it makes more sense of the fact that he is the guy who made this film and actually who, as Terry said, made a film that I think a lot of people, if this was exactly the same film just with someone else's name attached, would maybe be reacting in a, a slightly different way. I mean, one of my favourite tweets about this uh, was a negative tweet, uh, but it was from Dana Schwartz of EW who said, Joker is exactly... This, uh, like a film directed by a man called Todd. <laughs> <laughs> Which is funny. It's yeah. funnier than anything in the film. <laughs> but, but that's the thing, because the film doesn't go out, it doesn't set out to be funny No, in any way. That's what I was going to say, that I think he really does a good job of framing this. I watched this as a like a psychological thriller, almost horror at points. You're mm. seeing mm -hmm. it's, it's shot in this really sort of quite queasy green color all the stuff in his home where all the curtains are drawn but the lights are the lights coming through and it feels it's sickly like the it's whole film's sickly sickly yeah. and kind of seedy and kind of feels relatively for so, such a sort of mainstream character quite a transgressive yeah. sort of vision of what this film could be yeah um and I think that feeds into all these people saying, oh, but it, it glorifies him. It's like, no, you. it's a film purposefully about a monster shot as a sort of psychological thriller with this sort of queasy, uncomfortable lens. I, I, I think that sort of negated a lot of the idea for me that it somehow tries to get you on side with him. Think about his his body, right? I was fascinated by um, his physicality. I think you said it in your in your cover story, Alex. It's He looks hungry mm. and he looks so frail and so broken and there are a couple of um, shots where he doesn't have a shirt on. There's one in the living room and there's one in the locker room of the clown Academy <laughs> place. Clown, yeah. clown office. Clown office. Yeah. Clown, that, clown that's tech be the agency. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and the way it and the way it's shot and the way he moves, it's like you're watching a metamorphosis. It actually weirdly reminded me of Beast. And there's a shot mm -hmm. in, in the British film Beast, and there's a shot at the end where essentially she's metamorphos meta whatever that word is. Metamorphosizing. Thank you. Into kind of a creature. And I I actually think it's exactly that, which is you're watching this metamorphosis of this guy from yeah. from a human into 
into mm. Joker and his body and how his body reacts to that um, and how it moves with the the lighting in this film is just extraordinary. And I think that's where where people have maybe claimed this film didn't have much nuance or much kind of delicacy. I think there's so much of it in that if people kind of... Yeah. Those scenes are shot like a body horror. Mm. Doesn't his spine almost stretch? It's yes. like American mm. Werewolf in London. Mm. And by I, the last yeah. twenty minutes of this film is 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 a horror film mm. for me. Oh, while we're talking about the the locker room, the the, the clown locker room, whatever that is, um, I, I it, it feels weird to me that people are sort of criticizing the fact. Yes, there is a human character at the center of this, but also it feels like a film that's saying the fairly non controversial statement of don't give people, unstable people, guns. Like, he, in the opening act of the film, somebody gives him a gun. There, that, there is a country yeah. that, where that is very, very possible, which is sort of the country the film takes place in. Yeah. And I think that I, I, I found it quite interesting that, it, to me, it had a, a more nuanced take on um, the availability of, of weapons and the poor provisions of mental health services that, there are so many points along the way that, that this guy could have been stopped by having sort of better provisions in place in society mm. and that, I don't know, that the people aren't necessarily sort of responding to that side of the film in favour of yeah. mm. kind yeah. of just focusing on, well, this specific guy is sending this message out there. I don't, I don't yeah, know. I, I think the film is about empathy and compassion and not specifically just to him, but us as a society. That scene where they're on the bus and he's just making smiley faces at the kid, mm. and it's like yeah, he's trying to connect, yeah. yeah, yeah. And you sort of get where she's coming from yeah. when he starts laughing, which he can't help, and obviously he has the card. But that initial response of just like, oh, some some guys smiling at my kid on the bus to to snatch that away. That there are these moments of of cruelty that don't justify anywhere near what he does but also it's just like ah oh, we could we we could be better yeah we could be but also it's a it's a movie that goes out of its way to show that when arthur does make human contact that he misinterprets it in, yeah. a, in a horrible way mm. so when sophie makes that that brief connection with him in the in the elevator he really misinterprets that god he latches onto that yeah he? he really does he makes it into something more than than it is uh horribly so maybe he would have done the same thing with the kid on the bus mm. who knows but i think it's a really interesting point about about guns but also there's a there's an interesting you know talking about the idea that people go into this movie and they come away celebrating the joker and what he does that's kind of what happens in the film as well where he becomes the he becomes the figurehead for this this social uprising as well and he is he's celebrated within the film pretty much the last shot we see of him as a joker is on top of that cop car surrounded by hundreds of people mm. uh, inspired by him who are uh, who are lionizing him and I, I just wanted you to talk about that what do you, what do you feel about that aspect of the film well, but we're not supposed to feel that no we're, yeah. but some people are Alex and that's yeah I haven't I mean have you have you really seen quite a lot of this yeah yeah. That is frightening, though. Yeah, it is. It, it scared the shit out of me, if I'm honest with you. Uh, but there you go. I think it's interesting that the ideology that's attached to him isn't where he is coming from. He is beaten up by those dudes on the train, and he sort of instinctively snaps. It's not a, a shooting motivated by class inequality. 
but that's what that's the ideology that gets attached to him. I don't know necessarily he's an, what that says. He's but, an accidental anti-hero. Yeah. But he embraces it at the end because he's found himself. That it's a, a, people are sort of hungry for something to, to latch onto to find a cause to attach themselves to. But there's an irony there that that's not his cause at all. He, it wasn't motivated by the thing that the people are rallying around him for. Mm. This, this we uh, think, is that whole subway shooting incident is inspired, we think. Todd Phillips hasn't said this, but it seems pretty clear that it's inspired by a real incident that happened in New York in the early 80s where a guy who had been mugged before because the new uh, New York in the early eighties was absolutely mm. crime ridden, mm. barely any police presence, just muggings left, right, and centre. And there was a guy, a thirty-seven-year-old white guy, an electrical engineer, who had been mugged before and believed that the um, assailants weren't really imprisoned for long enough, and uh, he started carrying a gun around with him, unlicensed. And one day he thought that some people were going to mug him on the train, and he shot all four of them and he became an anti-hero in new york from all quarters in, in the media loads of people were backing him just saying we've had enough and um it looks like that incident in the film and a lot of what happens later in the film was based on that so it, it is about people it, it's an outcry basically and i do think even though it's initially in self-defense i actually think that's the moment he starts mm. to turn because he, even though he does it because he's just been attacked, I think you see him get something out of it afterwards. And I think where he gets to is that's the first time he's had a real world impact. Like there's moments in the film where he could be invisible. So little impact does he have on the people and what's happening around him. That moment on the subway is the f really the first time any of his actions have had actual consequences in the world where he clearly feels like he is he's he exists for the first time. And that, he says that, yeah. Yeah, he says that. And that's and you know, and there's a se beautiful scene in the bathroom. But it's it's that, he's, and that's a physical transformation. And that's a physical transformation, but that spark is on the subway scene. And I think a lot of people said, Oh, well, it was just self-defense, but actually afterwards there is a, a sense of he's quite triumphant about yeah. it whatever whatever motivated it the third murder isn't self-defense the third murder is him yeah. tracking down a guy in a nod to the French connection I, I guess as well there's lots of nods to 70s movies and, and Batman media of the past in, in this film as well and so him, he, he actually tracks a guy down the subway platform and kills him that's cold-blooded murder as, as opposed to the other two which I think a good defense lawyer could probably get you off for those two but, uh, but the third one not so much the third one, in the screening I was at, which was the big, the second screening I was at, the big multimedia, some people were laughing during that scene. Where it was he uncomfortable. I was there as well. Yeah, yeah, and that was horrible because clearly that, that scene isn't funny yeah. and is not meant to be funny. And there were people laughing and I, I, I thought, well, they, they must think it is supposed to be funny. And I don't know what film they were watching. I think, uh, like I was saying, when I was watching it, it, it was hard not to have that conversation in my head. Part of it was what we talked about before of, can is it the responsibility of the filmmakers to judge how people are going to react to their film? And having people laughing at slightly strange points during the screening going, that's a very different reaction to what I'm having and that makes me feel slightly uncomfortable yes. how that person is responding and reacting to the film. But that is that necessarily a reflection on the film itself rather than 
people's expectations going in? Or... I think it's unintended. It's yeah. not meant to be funny. The only things that made me laugh in that film were Joaquin Phoenix's funny little quirks mm. as an actor more than character. And the Bob Monkhouse joke <laughs> as well, which, as uh, someone pointed out, is a, is a stone cold, really, really well Isn't that written joke. weird, though? Because it's like De Niro's character doesn't get that joke. I know. But maybe it's the delivery. Maybe he doesn't like the delivery. I thought it was delivered pretty well. Um, yeah. Yeah, that's, that's interesting. But yeah, you're absolutely right. It's, it's about people's reactions to this that are slightly unsettling. Uh, the thing I talked about on Twitter, but also whenever the second time I saw it, the, during the scene where he kills Randall, that scene with Gary, people were laughing at that. And I can see how it's absurd, but I don't think that's what Phillips is going for. I think what he's going for is out-and-out horror in that scene. Mm. And for people to laugh at that, that's, well, that's maybe reflecting... Uh, that's you know, holding up a mirror to yourself, and uh, maybe, maybe there yeah. just is some confusion still with people. The fact that this is called Joker and yeah. it is technically a supervillain film, and maybe people mm. go in with some of that baggage and laugh as a weird reaction. But yeah. is it also because yeah. people are uncomfortable and and aren't quite sure what to make of it, and they think. <laughs> <laughs> like somebody in this room right now. But that's what cinema's meant to do. It's like this this kind of, you know, easy ride where you go in and everything's signposted and you understand it completely. And actually, I think the film that they've ended up making, the challenge for Todd Phillips and um, your mate Scott Silver, your co-writer, I, yeah. think, I think they've ended up making a more difficult film that actually is a bit harder to navigate. And I mm. think the reason that people laugh, I laughed at the, the Randall killing scene. I laughed when he couldn't get out the door. I laughed him, and it's not funny. I was, I was on tenterhooks the entire time in case he turned against Gary, and poor mm. Gary didn't deserve anything like that. I know that's that, that is kind of slapsticky, though. And what do we think of that? The fact that it's a little person because they do. I mean, he jumps up, he can't reach the handle. Is it? Is it mocking? Is it supposed is to be it funny? Phyllis being provocative. What? What's? Yeah. Maybe, I, I was a little uncomfortable with that because it did look like, ha ha, look at him, he can't reach it. I mean, there's yeah. no other purpose to that. Otherwise, other apart from that, that that is what would happen. I was going to say, isn't it? It just I I saw that as part of the realism, which is the commitment to realism by Phillips in this movie. I think goes right down to every detail, including. If he was in an, an apartment where the door handle was in the normal place, he wouldn't be able to reach it. Yeah. yeah. Which I know sounds stupid but and obvious. But it's still a filmmaking but... choice, though. Mm. Mm. Yes. I, mm. I, I guess it, it maybe puts the action in the hands of, of Arthur in that moment of whether he's going to let him go or not as well. Yeah, that it adds true. a sort of slightly tense moment where it's like, oh, it, like anybody else would be able to get out of this situation. This character can't. Is he going to let him go or... Mm. Is he? Is he gonna? Is this the end of this character? But how evil has he got? Right, because mm. Randall arguably, had, had, you know, if you were, or maybe in his mind, in terms of justification, he'd bullied him. Clearly, he'd lied about him. He'd given him the gun. There was clear kind of evidence of pre bad behaviour there. Whereas Gary, that wasn't the case. And I think I saw that as a real test of kind of how far is he going to go? Would he really kill somebody like that with with no kind of context whatsoever but yeah. he, he does he has a sadistic edge to him though in the relationship with gary yes he do, he's kind of goads him a little bit is it a power thing because he's a character who has had no power and he has all the power in yeah. that scene that's mm. it that he's like yeah. I, I i i could kill you i'm gonna let you go i think mm. all, I all bets you. are off by that point mm. yeah so uh, there's a couple of there's, there's a whole bunch of uh, stuff to to dig into as well. I have two big theories about this film that I'm sure will be shot down and poo pooed before I've even uh, finished saying them. But uh, we've got to lose in a second. 
But one of the things I wanted to talk about, uh, Terry, I wanted to get your take on this as well, was the film's attitude towards women as well. Because it, it surprised me when I saw this movie and I, knowing how much you loved it, given that there is violence meted out towards women in the movie, and I know how strongly you feel about that, and quite rightly so, that surprised me a little bit. So what was your take on the film's attitude towards women and Arthur's uh, violence towards them? So I... I made mention of one specific thing in my review, which was um, specifically about the character of Sophie, Zazie Beats, which which wasn't so much about violence, although you are unsure of her fate, um, arguably, mm-hmm. um, but was kind of how underused Zazie Beats is, as who is an absolute fucking firecracker yeah. um, and incredible. But I think there are kind of storytelling justifications. And ultimately, it reminds me of something Scorsese said this weekend when he was asked about at a festival about the lack of really powerful women in The Irishman. And he said, you know, it's what the story and the characters dictate for this particular film. And I felt for for this particular film, which is entirely from his perspective, deluded at times, what's Mm -hmm, true, what's mm -hmm. not, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Mm -hmm. um, It felt appropriate to me. And Sophie, at first I was like, why is she so underused? I don't understand it. And then the more I sat with it, you know, he's so disassociated from reality. And actually the whole thing hangs on them having very little real world contact that he then essentially imagines into this relationship, which never happened. Um, The reason they don't flesh out her character is because she's not fucking real. Right, so I it that felt entirely understandable to me. I just wanted more Zayda Beats because I think she's made in, and I'm a greedy cow. Now his mom, I think, is an actually really interesting character because there's a reading of her character which goes, she's kind of tossed away as a mad woman who's kind of had these delusions, made up his parentage, which is a whole different thing altogether. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, I think, yes, I'm sure we are. <laughs> I think there is a much more interesting take on this, and obviously he does. Spoiler, we're on a spoiler special. Killer. Um, smothers her in the... <laughs> what? Yeah. Holy shit. Spoiler! I thought he was just giving her a special sleep. <laughs> smothers oh. her... Special sleep, Speci- mummy. What? Special <laughs> oh sleep now. Oh my God, that's dark. Um, smothers her with the pillow. Um, <laughs> oh, I'm going to have nightmares oh. about that today. This is a new concept oh. for me. Oh, I'm going to log that one in my parenting book. Um right future things but I think there's a much more interesting um, reading of her character because there are clues that she actually didn't make it all up you know there's a photograph um, which on the back in initialed by Thomas Wayne says I love the way you smile (laughs) all right which sounds romantic and obviously he then goes to the hospital and he sees the records which states that she was she allowed a boyfriend to abuse him and that that's where all his trauma comes from and she was delusional um and obviously thomas wayne tells him in the bathroom that she was delusional and she's they definitely didn't have a relationship there is a question in my mind about whether she's actually was spectacularly gaslit and did have a relationship and actually, you know, women were often, especially kind of 50s to 70s, women were often institutionalised kind of by their husbands, by their partners as part of kind of a relationship breaking down, as a part of control. I think there's a much more interesting thing happening with Penny than may initially seem on the surface. Mm -hmm. Obviously, there is violence towards women. As we say, his mother's heard. There's the hospital worker at the end who you presume... Um, it's heavily implied. There's bloody footprints. You, yeah. you presume he's he's done her wrong. Yes. I didn't feel any particular misogyny in that violence, which is actually where my where my problems lay with female violence on screen. 
obviously there is a building pattern of of violence throughout this film as he becomes worse and worse and worse and his character completely dissolves, he, essentially. He kills a lot more men than women in the film. Yeah. Just but only because there's a lot more men in the film than women, perhaps. Yeah, yeah right. Uh, pretty much every significant female character he comes up against, he, he, uh, he kills, uh, with the exception of his first counsellor. Just Sophie didn't... It wasn't killed, was she? I think again, you do, you it's heavily know. implied, right? I don't. He he um he's in her room. He's in her apartment, and she says, "Get out of my apartment." The next thing we see is him walking back to his apartment. But you would have to um, um well, I've assumed that he's he's killed her. What happens to her her daughter? I don't know. But that's that's the assumption. But th- maybe that's just maybe that's just me. I thought she had the upper hand. Actually, I think the answer to a lot of this is. It's supposed to be a little ambiguous and open to interpretation. Yes. I don't think there are answers off screen that were written that we don't know about. I think that's the point of the whole film, really. Yeah. I mean, with that sort of thing of you can read what you want into it and take what you want from it. I quite like the idea. If this is going to be like an Elseworlds story, I quite like the notion that um, Arthur's dad might be Thomas Wayne, that that sort of... Um, him and Bruce Wayne both coming from the same place, but in these vastly different circumstances. I think there's, in in a world where there are infinite interpretations of these characters on page, mm-hmm. on screen, mm-hmm. um, and everything in between, I thought that was quite an interesting notion that I hadn't really thought about before. It's interesting though, isn't it, that this version of Thomas Wayne's a Trumpian shitbag. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, because we're, we're, yeah. uh, wasn't it rumoured in, in the early casting that this is the role that Alec Baldwin might be? It was. For? He was, it cast, was. Yeah, he pulled out. Yeah, really? a few days beforehand. Yeah, mm, I wonder why. Um, I think just it was nothing to do with the content of the film. Yeah. I just think it was a schedule thing. That would I actually, have been interesting I, I, with... he would have been great casting for that. Mm. Yeah. But I actually prefer that it's someone who's not as iconic. I mm. think I think these things are better if they're if they're character actors supporting the main thing that's going on. It's more believable. Indeed. And by the way, if um, Martin Scorsese wants to watch films about uh, strong, powerful women, can I recommend Captain Marvel and <laughs> Ant-Man and the Wasp? I think he might enjoy them. Also, Black Panther? A, Black Panther has a couple of great bits in Avengers Infinity War and Avengers Endgame. Listen, Marty, if you're listening to this, and I know you are, just come around the Empire Towers and we'll put together a little little presentation, a little Marvel presentation. We'll think we'll get you back on board, back on side. Hey? Hey? Hello? <laughs> Is this thing on? Marty? Hello? Anyway. 1-800-MARTY if you want to get in touch with us about that one. Um, should we talk about Joaquin Phoenix? Yeah. Should we talk about his performance? Mm-hmm. And uh, do we think he's going to win the Oscar? I think he'll be nominated. He won't win. I think this film will get a few nominations and win maybe not. It could win cinematography, I think. I think it's beautiful. But I don't think the big prize. I think it'll get some nods, but they won't give it the big prizes. Not to get too distracted, but Terry's immediate response was that he won't win. Do you think there's another performance out there that that it just stands a much better chance, or do you think it's the fact that the film is controversial that might stand against it? I think the controversy, and I think um, there is still, even though this is incredibly different, character study, thriller, whatever, it's still a comic book movie. I think he won't win, but I think he'll be in the running. Um, I think it's got nothing to do with mm. any other performances. Mm. Um, do you think they'd he, be loath to give him the, the award, having given an award to someone else for playing the same role? 11 okay. years ago do you think that might that might play at the Academy's thinking my feeling on the Academy this year is that they're not going to uh, nominate Taron Egerton for example for giving a much better performance in Rocketman than Rami, Rami Malek, Malek did in mm. Bohemian Rhapsody but they've they've gone down that path once before so they're not going to do it and I've, I've got a sneaky suspicion that might also come into play with uh, with Whacking Phoenix also there's the thing about whether he would be prepared to do the uh, the uh, the whole schlepping thing the whole pressing flesh thing 
Which presumably he's done once before. I don't think, with this film and this performance, I don't think he needs to do that. I think he's either going to get a nomination or he isn't. He's not going to do the whining and dining. I think he should, and I think he should do it entirely in character as Arthur Fleck. I wonder, though, having read those things that come out, is it The Hollywood Reporter who do Mm. those interviews with the Oscar voters where... A lot of the times it's just like, really oh, old. yeah, everyone's voting for Wacky and Phoenix and Jokers. Yeah. I just thought I'd, I'd vote for Wacky and It's really old white guys. Well, I saw that Joker film. I, I didn't like it very much. It was very violent. I'm not going to vote for that. I think yeah, a lot of people does. will actually think that, though. Yeah. It's a shame. But yeah, he's great. I think he's going to get a nomination. I think, you know, in the great pantheon of Joker performances, he's just below Cesar Romero for me. No, I'm kidding. Uh, but... <laughs> He is, he's incredible in this film. Uh, sometimes, sometimes I think you can maybe see the gears working a little bit, maybe. That's just my opinion. But I also think he's the first Joker, and I'm including Heath Ledger in this, uh, and even Jack Nicholson, whose Joker was psychotic. He's the first Joker who's genuinely terrifying, as in you do not want to be in the same room as this guy, as in he's a physical threat, mm. as in you don't know when he's going to kick off, as in he could shiv you at any second. Yeah. And that's terrifying to me. Because he's like a real person. Yeah. Well, he's like it, you, Alex, right now. I just don't know whether you're going to go for it. Well, we'll find out. <laughs> coiled, coiled like a cobra. That's what I think mm. of when I look at you. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> but I think he's unlike any Joker we've seen before, and I think that's what makes the performance so great in the film so exciting. I think being freed from the bondage... Yes, I said bondage of <laughs> of um, the DCU of the character because what you just said about it being human it's it's the story of Arthur as much as it's the story of how Joker came to be and I think that's what makes it fascinating. Mm. That's what makes it really interesting. I think a comparison is actually really difficult because I just think they are such different characters that it's a bit of a nonsense in some respects mm. I, I think the genuine elevator pitch for this film would, would not be how the Joker came to be but if this were real what sort of person what would you have to go through to get to that point it's not really the Joker's origin mm. I don't think anyone who made this film was really concerned with that yeah in fact you may have teed up Chris's big theory part one uh, which is I don't think this is about the Joker at all I think this is this is about a man who may inspire the Joker down the line. But if even if you were going, this is an Elseworld story, and his origin is intertwined with Bruce Wayne's. Just logistically, he can't be the Joker because by the time Bruce Wayne grows up to become Batman, he would be in his sixties. So I mean, that's kind of Caesar Romero territory, <laughs> Jack Nicholson territory, maybe. But he might even have a, a mustache at that point. He may even have a mustache. But I, I just wonder if it is about someone in this universe who is undergoing a breakdown, who who has Joker-like symptoms and Joker-like appearance, but isn't necessarily. I think this is why the movie is called Joker. I was going to say, just think it's why it's not missing the, the Joker. The... Yeah, it's not the definite article because he's not the definite article. Um, but it's a, it's a really interesting psychological study of someone who clearly. And you could even argue that the person who kills those poor bastards, Thomas and Martha Wayne, killed on screen for the 447th time. <laughs> the pearls drop once more. <laughs> the best one, though. The yeah, best one. I loved it. Really, this one? It was, it I loved it. I, oh, loved, sorry. It was, I loved it. I loved it. it. Spe- My favourite bit. Special <laughs> sleep. Special <laughs> sleep for Thomas Wayne. Special sleep now. Stop doing that. <laughs> no, as a, as a Batman fan for many decades and someone who has seen that scene happen in a million different ways... It was really shocking and thrilling. In a, in a, you sicko! But but it is you sicko perv. 
It, just in terms of Batman mythology, I just think they got that right because you saw it from the kid's point of view. The mm. last shot of him in the alleyway staring back at us at the horror that was going on and the weight of all the mythology on, that we know on his shoulders. I thought that was really exciting. That's interesting. Um, so, which means you disagree entirely. No, no, no. Yeah. I, no I, 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 think, I, I think it's been done to literal death, uh, the, the, the Waynes. I think this is a really good telling of it. I think the best telling of it is in Teen Titans Goodla movies, uh, <laughs> where the Teen Titans uh, push the, the Waynes in order to make Batman become Batman. Uh, they've screwed it up earlier on, so they go back in time to Crime Alley and they push his parents into the path of the gunman and then turn they around and do a thumbs up. To, to <laughs> they the even put man. the pearls on the yes, um, they put the, they put the Wayne. Pearls they put a, the string of pearls around <laughs> the neck and then shove her into the alley. It's like it's, the most brutal joke in any kid's film. It's the darkest shit. You're going, this, who's this aim for? What's going on? Uh, in your so, face, Todd Phillips. Yeah, now that's cinema, Marty. <laughs> I don't know if I anything else. But... Uh, I think it's a really interesting take on it and also maybe you could argue that the person who kills them we see their face behind a mask and maybe that is the person who goes on to become the Joker um, and that wouldn't be out of canon either because that's what happened in the Tim Burton Jack Nicholson uh, iteration as well but that's my take on it and now poo poo and shoot down well I just I think it's so apart from the canon right so I think He's not attempting to do anything canonical or not canonical. So in yeah. terms of the age difference and in, in terms of, um, uh, fuck, I had a second but, point. The well, baby ate it. The baby ate your point. <laughs> but can I just say as well that he's... This, this, I want to see that film. This, this Joker, and I'm going to quote a tweet from a guy called James Hamilton who, said, who made me laugh a lot. Uh, Joker in all other films. What if Batman's arch nemesis was an insanely clever, Loki-esque trickster who thrives in chaos and contrasts comedy with brutality? and then Joker in Joker what if a mentally ill man killed people <laughs> which <Yeah>. is basically <laughs> yeah. but what I'm saying what that gets to I think is that this Arthur Fleck is not a criminal mastermind he is not a Machiavellian genius I don't see him as someone who would be even three steps ahead of Batman or even you know one step ahead of Batman so mm. That's one of the uh, so also grist for my he's not the Joker mill. But I don't think they're concerned with that. No, isn't they're, they're this... not. But there will be people who are nerds like me. But <laughs> so. we are, and everybody else is. But I think t- t- when Todd Phillips says he he kind of ignored pretty much everything and started with a blank page, I think he means that. So I think mm. any consequences that we read into this yeah. in terms of him being, you know, broken as opposed to a mastermind, all of those things. I think this, to your point earlier, Alex, is. A hypothetical version of a man who could become the Joker, uh-huh. but I don't think he's concerned with how would this, you know, fit into the timeline and what would that mean about the, the Joker's what is wrong real with character. This guy? I know, but I think once you think of it in that way, fuck me, like everything is on and off the table, right? Off the table, on the table, up the table, All down uh, under the table. Arthur I Fleck don't know. wouldn't care. It would even be a table with Arthur Fleck. He's so crazy. Because once you think about it like that, then there is no kind of right or wrong within this in terms Mm. of is he the actual Joker? Okay. Because I think this is a hypothetical kind of in just in this universe version of that story Mm. that stands alone. So then why would they go, why would, why have so much Bruce Wayne in the movie? Why, why go to all those lengths to tie his story into Thomas Wayne and to Bruce Wayne and have that scene with young Bruce where he's really creepy? Because they wouldn't have been given $55 million to make this film if there wasn't some of that in No, but it's true. Todd Phillips, yeah, I mean, we all know about how this film came to be made. Should we, do we, should we go over that? Let's go for it. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. 
right? He, you know, he, he's, I don't think he's interested in comic book films or superheroes. He wanted to make the sort of film that he liked in the 1970s, um, Taxi Driver, Serbico, Dog Day Afternoon, blah, blah, blah. And um, <laughs> he looked at what was going on around the time where he was, uh, where War Dogs was coming out, and there was a lot of this stuff going on. And he said, well, maybe if I used that sort of property, I can do the sort of film I want to make. And then he wrote this film. And then he, he took the script to Warner Brothers, and they gave him the money. And I don't think, if he just called it Joker, and he ends up, killing a few people at the end i actually think that would have been disrespectful i don't i think i think he's into it enough that he wanted to thread the mythology in there to the extent that it's in there and i think it works really well so why then set it in this particular time period so that it's a young bruce wayne it's thomas wayne it's not you know there's no even like a young batman it's 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 a very specific choice of time period for me he set it in the 1980s for two reasons in the early 1980s for two. I think he told me it was 1981 although they don't yeah. state it in the film well, Exc- Excalibur's out isn't it in this in this movie isn't that what they see or no that's that's Zack Snyder's movie <laughs> something's out in 1981 he, he did it for two reasons first of all because he wanted to blatantly set it apart from everything else that is going on now in the contemporary world he didn't want anyone to confuse what was going on with could this exist in a Zack Snyder heavens forbid, universe or anything else. And the other reason is because Todd Phillips is from New York and he grew up there in the 1980s and pre-Giuliani, pre-being cleaned up, and he wanted it to be a representation of what New York was then. I mean, look, it's called Gotham in the film, but I mean, yeah. they don't do much to make it not New York. Yeah, they never have, quite rightly, have they? Yeah. <laughs> uh, it is, Gotham is as Gotham does. But you need to Gotham to be a physical manifestation of the sickness and the toxicity mm-hmm. at the yeah. heart of the film. So I think that alone justifies the period and the mm. specific year. Because as soon as you open with super rats and garbage piling up and slums within the city and the poor being so poor, you, you know exactly where you are. And that kind of, it exists, Gotham in this film exists as a character within its own right, but also as a physical, I think, articulation of the of the sickness and sadness and, yeah. and broken downness, not a real word, of um, of Arthur himself. Mm, yeah. Yeah. Can, can we talk about the real um, Scorsese homage here, which is the CGI rat in tribute to the CGI rat at the end of the... Uh, sure that's what happened Terry was on by super rats and uh, I was disappointed that he didn't face off against super rats in this movie but if you are he looking for a film by sequel, one, and yeah. Then. yeah if you are looking for a film that has a super rat then can I recommend Avengers Endgame in which uh, a rat appears of course and uh, sets the whole plan in motion uh, check it out Marty it's, it's really good speaking of Batman mythology the moment where he meets little Bruce and he jumps off that thing and slides down the pole. Yes, yes. I love that. Absolute genius. <laughs> because it's not played blatantly for laughs. It's quite a yeah. subtle, classy it's moment. Not, it's yeah. not a shark repellent spray. It's nothing, right, it's nothing no, like that. No, no, but yeah. that's exactly it. I love the fact that the one little nod to the Batmans that have come before in this film of all films is Adam West. But I think there's other nods throughout the film. I mean, a lot of people have made mention of the fact that when he's in the police car at the end, the framing of that yeah. is almost identical to when uh, Heath Ledger's Joker yeah. is uh, sticking his head out the uh, the car at the end. And can we really ignore the fact that the he- the hero of this movie is called Affleck? Yes. Can we? <laughs> I don't think we should. It feel playful, doesn't it? I mean, there, there's there's some there's something going on here with with Batman mythology uh, of of Batman's past, and Affleck is literally the hero <laughs> of this film, Alex. You can't ignore that. 
Yeah, I think Joaquin Phoenix and Todd Phillips were paying tribute to the best Batman. There we go. <laughs> Hello, darkness, it's my official. old friend. By the, way, by the way, if any of this has been said by Todd Phillips already, then then please forgive us, uh, because we haven't had a chance to listen to the interview. Uh, John Nugent is also editing that as well. So I haven't heard it yet, so I hope it's, re- I hope it's really good. Can uh, I say one thing before we move on? Yes, of course. On, um, Thomas Wayne and Bruce Wayne. Now, I think there are a couple of storytelling reasons for them being there and, and what that enabled us to see with Arthur, which was one thing, which is his kind of desperation to belong. That's at the heart of him wanting to believe that Thomas Wayne is his father, right? Is is that complete isolation? Get it, for me, it was another example of him trying to reach out and connect mm. and always failing and always yeah. being rejected. Because he thinks Murray, he sees Murray as a it's father, a father figure, figure as well. Yeah. yeah. So that's kind of a, a recurring thing. But then also there's a sense towards the end, which is, you know, him and Bruce are now kind of in the same boat because he caused his parents to be murdered. And at that moment, they're now... If you were to believe this, he was the Joker and this set the stage for their kind of battle to come that actually they're now on an, on an even keel and he thinks at that point Bruce maybe for the first time understands what it's like to be Arthur does he in know the world. That? Does he see that murder happening? I don't think he does, does he? I don't it's, think so. It's, that's interesting because most mm. of the film is from Arthur's point of view except mm. for that one moment that, that breaks away to show the, the murder of the Waynes. And that's why I think that's maybe more significant in terms but, of the... But he'd know, right, at some the point. The true yeah. You would, Yeah, he you would, would think. So I'm talking about when he's in the hospital at the end, if we, yes. you know, whatever we believe that to be in terms of reality. Um, he would know theory. by that point. And when he says, uh, she says, what do you find funny? And he says, oh, you wouldn't get it. Yes. And that smile, and I think Todd Phillips in an interview with Empire magazine um, <laughs> said that that was the first real, the first true, the first true smile in the film and at that moment he's free and I feel like he's liberated by actually the cruelty of of putting Bruce Wayne in the same position of isolation and sadness and grief that he's in that's a theory you're welcome people I think Todd Phillips could care less about any of this business (laughs) couldn't don't be American I like could Could it doesn't make any sense he could care less he couldn't care less hey I could care less about this freaking character development (laughs) what the frick is that Um, here's Chris's big theory three the whole thing's a dream I knew you were going to say that I don't think the whole thing is but I've got a point there's a point for me in the film where I'm like, I think everything after that point could just be his delusions of grandeur and fancy. I, just, I think the stuff that we're shown to be delusion is delusion, and the rest isn't. Yes, Alex. By the way, yeah. Um, I, it, I mean, of minor interest, I believe they haven't said this, but from what I've been gathering in my counterintelligence, um, <laughs> Zazie Beetz's Beats's character was rewritten on set on the fly. I have a hunch that it wasn't written as delusion because that was the only thing that changed. But she would show up to set every day and they would say, we're not doing that. And they kept rewriting it. I believe because Joaquin and Todd were saying, this isn't really working. This doesn't really feel right. Why would, you know, what is the point of this relationship? What is the point of her character? Um, So I don't think it was the plan all along for that to be delusion. I think they were discovering that as they were making the film, which I think is really interesting. So they had her as his genuine I th- I'm, they love interest. They haven't said that. I'm, I'm, I'm getting that's, that. That's Because you'd, you'd run a mile from that I mean, guy, yeah. wouldn't you? You just, you just would. The whole bit where she goes, are, we, are you stalking me? And he goes, oh, yeah. And then they're like, oh, oh. off we go in a day. carry on film. Yeah. <laughs> oh, I wish I'd gone in and shot the whole bank up. Oh, Nick, baby, I will. Um, that's a real meat cute, isn't it? Yeah. It oh, really is. God. Um, so... 
I, how yeah. I got pregnant. <laughs> <laughs> Book two. <laughs> wow. So, um, but yeah, I, 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 for example, I, that twist didn't floor me when I saw it coming. I kind of expected it. Because yes. the whole way yeah. through you're going like, I know these guys met in the lift and had that small conversation, but why is she hanging out with them all the time? That yeah. came out of nowhere. So I, I think I twigged, I had twigged that that was... I didn't. I, Did everybody not? goes, everyone goes, oh, I fucking saw it coming in my life. I didn't at all. Maybe it's because I lived in New York and I know how hard it is to find a good man and you do make <laughs> massive kind of exceptions for having a date. And so I was like, well, you know, I probably dated worse men when <laughs> I lived there. <laughs> wow. Okay. Well, that's good to know. Um, so, so my theory on that front is that when he, uh, there's the scene in the hospital halfway through where Zazie Beats is there and then she leaves the room and when she leaves the room, that's when the TV comes on with Robert De Niro and he's like, ah, oh, we've got this footage from the club. Hey, look and at this fucking guy, kind of thing. That bit. Yeah. And that to me felt like a sort of continuation of his sort of delusion, the fact that that footage would have been picked up and then it would be mm. on the TV on this show that he watches with his mum while his mum's then, in a sort of coma thing and he's the only one actually seeing that in the room. So then for me, sort of, this was genuinely my thoughts kind of as I was watching the film, that then everything sort of towards the end when he goes on the show yeah. is a continuation of that delusion and that actually the police were fully on his trail by the time he did the, the murders in the apartment um, and that at that point he has kind of stopped he's in the asylum but in his in his head his delusions of grandeur he sees himself as going out into so the think- world de- declaring himself on tv shooting murray what's his name and the whole riot and everything all of that <laughs> I think that so, is actually isn't it yeah. is it <laughs> i, I don't well, think it's that film it's not knives out i just don't but think. hang on you were going to say something earlier which i think is about an earlier there's an earlier shot of um arthur in a white yes. room. Yes. So in his uh, first scenes with his social worker, uh, Sharon Washington, is played by Sharon Washington in the film, uh, there's a moment where she talks about him being back in the asylum. And there's, there's reference to him having been committed to Arkham before. And you get a brief glimpse of him in Arkham, stark white, completely different colour scheme to the rest of the film, apart from the end, where he's smashing his head repeatedly against the glass of his room. And the second time I watched this, I was like, oh, shit, that's real. That's reality. That's what's happening right now. And everything else is imagined. And there's a couple of reasons. There's a couple of other reasons for this that I, I noticed. That one, the cops seem to act as if they're almost fantasy cops. They're incompetent. They don't, they, they, they suspect him Imagine very strongly. That. Yeah, true. But, <laughs> you know, if, if he has killed Sassy Beach's character or if he has, you know, even if he hasn't, if he's killed Randall earlier in the day and Gary has been let out and Gary would have immediately gone to the cops and gone, look, it's this guy, Arthur. He's just killed someone. I reasonably believe he's also the guy who killed the people on the, on the subway. Then the cops, uh, Shea Wiggum and, and Bill Camp's cops, would have, I think, maybe cropped up a little earlier than they did. And when they do crop up and he's having his fantasy fugue state thing, his little dance number uh, on those steps, they're so incompetent. They call out his name when he's 50 yards away from them. Hey, Arthur, why don't you come and talk to us? And he's like, no, fuck that. I'm scarpering. <laughs> Those are those little things to me that indicate there's a sort of dream state logic happening here. But also someone uh, sent in a question to me today saying, pointing out that, have we noticed this? And I hadn't, um, that throughout the movie, all the clocks are at the same time. All the clocks are showing 10 past 11. 
every single clock in every single scene when we see one shows 10 past 11 and I do wonder mm. if that means that the whole thing is a dream that's totally mm, like I hope me this out. isn't true because I think if it is it's a bit of a cop out isn't it but, well I just know. think it would undermine the points that the film is trying to make if it just isn't true and what you're talking about after Gary gets away and he would have gone to the police yeah. I think from that point on we need to have some suspension of disbelief because it gets very plot devicey after that. It does. Things happen because they need to. It becomes actually a little less realistic from that point on. But would it be the most Joker move to have a movie that is completely un- unreal and, pl- and doesn't so take Todd place Phillips until, is apart from, apart from, yeah, Todd Phillips. Is, he's <laughs> laughing at it going, he's <laughs> laughing all the way to the back. <laughs> he, really, he really is. And then some $750 million in counting so far. Yeah. And it, it would fit with the whole thing of, um, I know this isn't supposed to be definitive, but that there is no clear origin story for this cam- for this character no. and and the whole thing in The Dark Knight where he continually gives different yeah. versions of the story. In fact, he has a name yeah. as yeah. well. Mm-hmm. I, 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 I think one of the things I really like about the film and admire about it, I think it's quite difficult to do that sort of um, ambiguous storytelling that doesn't either feel totally wishy-washy or like, oh yeah, there's some ambiguity, but this is what you're supposed to think. I think mm. there is actually a lot in there that you can read in different ways that bring you to all these different outcomes but that doesn't, to me, feel like a cop-out. I think that's why Joaquin Phoenix did it. I think this is a sort of ambiguous, ambiguous grey area character that he likes to play that, that there aren't answers for. Which I think is why he's so awful in interviews about it because he doesn't want to... <laughs> he doesn't know. Yeah. Right? <laughs> and well, that, well, no, because that's not the point. Well, he's an, I, don't, I don't think there... I think we could sit here and debate this until one of us dies. <laughs> um, hopefully not me. But I think... I don't think Todd Phillips has a definitive version of this story in terms of this is definitively true, this is definitively mm-hmm. not true. No. It plays with the concept of truth and delusion and, and all of these things. And I think that is what makes it super interesting. That scene you talked about with the where he's talking to his social worker and he talks about being committed and you see the white cell. And I was like, oh, that's a flashback to when he's been committed before. Yeah. But then obviously when you see the end of the film, which is in this pure, brilliant white, white, you can't yeah. help but obviously hark back. So I think he there are deliberate kind of things drop to make us question that but I think we're meant to question the nature of perspective of what one person's version of a story is um, how delusions work all of that and I think Todd Phillips would would probably say I'm not going to speak for him because you know he's not here he can speak for him then Um, on the phone is that there isn't one true version of this I think it's whatever version whatever kind of uh, interpretation you yeah. choose to take from it. The Joker is the most unreliable narrator yes. of them all mm. and what better way to show that than by having the whole movie be some sort of fantasy concoction in his head or at least uh, you know a huge part of it for me is a fantasy uh, and the movie overtly obviously shows that with, with Sophie being a figment of his imagination up to a certain point but what if the movie goes beyond that little bit? But then why? Okay so this is my problem with it and that I am where you are Alex which is I take everything at face value including Sophie which is revealed within the film to be a delusion you're Mm -hmm. shown that right so my thing is why show that element to be a delusion but keep the rest if that if that is true if that is or if loads of it is a fantasy or a delusion or whatever we're saying then why show the Sophie bit (laughs) <laughs> I just it's not I don't think it's interesting that the whole thing could be deluded no, 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 it, it was all a dream I mean it's yeah. just it goes nowhere it's the, ulti- it's the ultimate uh, cop out but I think a lot of it is and uh uh, but the interesting, you know, at the end I, I can't remember exactly what the what the counselor says to him at the end of, in Arkham um, but 
I don't know. Please it's, don't it, kill me. I, yeah, pretty much. But it is interesting. How do you explain as well the the weirdly weird Benny Hill kind of ending where he's walking down the corridor with his bloody footprints and he's being chased around by orderlies? That's it is weird. Such a strange An unnecessary ending. ending, really. Yeah. But I think that's a little bit of fan service. I think that's a nod mm. to the fact that the Joker goes in and out of Arkham Asylum for his professional career. He's mm. always breaking out and getting locked up again. And at the end of that film... He is more like the joke we know because he's mischievous. Because yeah. that felt more like uh, Rock and Roll Part 2 to me. That felt of a similar mm. note. So when you've got him dancing on the steps and he's the green hair and he's become the Joker, as you say, that we know and mm. recognise. Yeah. And that felt like a nod. <laughs> yeah, I did start. I, it was right on the tip of my tongue, let me tell you. Um, he's, uh, a, he's a bad guy. That feels like the same thing. Where that kind of cape esque element to yeah. the final shot for me felt really deliberate and uh, I guess the biggest clue as well that Arthur is um, uh, is perhaps cracking up is the fact that he watches a Charlie Chaplin movie and laughs at it uh, I don't know whether anyone else had that reaction <laughs> to it but people have said that it's modern times he's watching yeah. it's modern right. times people yeah. have said that that is a Todd Phillips ham-fisted way of um, comparing the situation to what's going on politically now, socially, I'm not sure. Maybe. Yeah, I was just taken out by the fact that everyone was laughing at the Charlie Chaplin movie when he's deeply, deeply unfunny. That's an, um, no, that's, wonder, that's an amazing. I wonder sequence. if. <laughs> I mean, uh, are we cancelling Charlie Chaplin? Yeah, big time, big time. I'm not expecting everyone to be on board with this. Uh, it's a big theory that Charlie Chaplin is deeply unfunny. <laughs> That was a controversial theory, but uh, there you go. <laughs> the um, most controversial of the podcast. Just throwing it out there. Uh, do you want to take some listeners' questions? Uh, let's see where we are. Someone is just literally sending me pictures of the Joker. That's nice. <laughs> Thank you. That's good. Are, okay. they, are they nudes? Uh, they're not nudes. They're not. Uh, yes. In fact, that's not even a question. That Literally, the first one I had was more of a comment than a question. That's oh, nice. Uh, of so. Uh, speaking of uh, what we've just been talking about, at Banyard 88, I'm taking these in the order I'm seeing them, uh, I heard a theory that Arthur dies in the fridge and everything after that is fantasy. What do you guys think of that? Wrong. Next. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Alex, we need to get you into these spoiler specials more often because <laughs> the clean efficiency there was incredible. Uh, do you think Thanos? No. <laughs> what about? No. Revrov asks how much of any of the affair between Arthur's mum and Batman's dad was actually true and the, the note on the photograph is interesting but then again if it is a fantasy then Arthur might be placing something in that fantasy that corroborates his theory well yeah if that part is if the what you see on the photo is his delusion then that complicates everything but I, I do think there is there are hints that there was an affair for sure whether that makes him the father of him is a completely different debate. Okie dokie. Uh, Milar69 asks, do you think or know, and I, uh, Alex has already talked about this, uh, given his theory, uh, and I've given mine, if Joker killed Sophie and her kid, what do you think? I don't know. There's part of me that wonders because he had formed this attachment to her if that's something where he would let her go. I don't know if that's really... But she broke the she broke the spell kind of. Do you know right, there's the yeah, there's the moment because she yeah. breaks the delusion. The moment when they're in the apartment and he realizes that she's not been there all along, and she's like, basically, what the fuck are you doing? Get out! I wonder if that real harsh moment of reality would have basically led to him killing her. I don't want to think I know, about but the it. Would, would that not then be the only person he kills who we don't see being killed? 
Well, well we but also this. the wor- hospital worker at the end, right? Yeah. Okay. But no, I, I felt at the end of that scene, he was sort of more embarrassed and a little disgraced and just sloped off. But again, that's, that's, that's cop calling, isn't it? I mean, that's, that's the sort of thing you would call the cops about. And if they're already yeah. on to him yeah. for, for Lewis but murders. The, the film would have been over after an hour if anyone had called the cops. That's true. Uh, but there are, there are other elements throughout the movie that suggest there's a fantasy. I mean, there's that there, there's the the uh, his boss in the uh, the cl- the clown school clown office, whatever the hell that is, who <laughs> basically says, you know, you you disappeared with the guy sign. The guy wants to sign back. It's no, I was attacked by these kids. It's like no, yeah. no, you weren't. You know, come on, give the sign back. And then there's the whole thing about Randall and the gun, where we see Randall give him the gun, but then later there's a story that actually he took the gun or was or bought the gun of Randall and then Randall doesn't seem to know anything about it later on and so there's interesting shifting stories throughout the throughout the narrative I don't get that I don't understand why he gave him the gun which I believe he did I just think that's maybe not the best written part of the film (laughs) (laughs) here have a gun you the man who is clearly psychotic (laughs) that's basically it they needed Arthur to have a gun and he gave him one I don't know if there's much more to it but wasn't he like kind of he they had a very fractious relationship I'm sure he knew that you give him a gun he's going to do something fucking stupid with it like drop it on the floor of a children's hospital Mm. for example I felt like he was stitching him up quite frankly really and it was part of his victim and whether it is a delusion but it's part of the pattern of him being victimised mm-hmm. Agreed Amundo uh, at Ricky Bags uh, asks as much as I enjoyed Joker isn't it simply an amalgam of Taxi Driver and the King of Comedy no okay next question <laughs> Obviously inspired heavily by both. Um, Robert De Niro is only in this film because of those reasons. And, you know, Todd Phillips has been very transparent about that from the start. But I think it's more than that is my answer. I think even if it's heavily influenced by those things, it doesn't mean it doesn't have its own artistic merits or ideas Mm. or things that it's playing with. And the fact, even just taking those sorts of films and applying it to a sort of comic book story... Mm. Part of the reason that this has caused so much controversy and why everyone's talking about it is because that doesn't really happen very often. Yeah. So I think even, yeah, it does draw heavily uh, it, it, and it feels fairly open about the fact yes, that it takes... Yes, it's inspired, but I don't think it's trying to be those films, though. And I think it is completely its own thing. I also think we've, we have so much dialogue about, oh, you know, comic book movies, they're all the same. Feel so apathetic. It's oh. not cinema. <laughs> Get out of my house. Right? And then, all these things. And then, and then somebody does something which I think is super interesting with it as a genre, and everybody shit cans it anyway. So, the end. Yeah, I, I, this isn't the sort of film that Scorsese was talking about, though, I think. And he was almost involved with it. Mm. But then he didn't do it. <laughs> <laughs> then he realized it was a superhero film and he was you know, and he had to yeah, fucking theme park. Yeah. He had to throw salt over his shoulder three times and turn around in a circle. Shoot a pigeon. Shoot a pigeon. Do all the things. Oh, I nearly I nearly was involved with superhero. The world's saddest theme park is what this uh, <laughs> what this is as a comic book movie. Broken down yeah. theme park. Oh but, my god, uh, it's Alton Towers. <laughs> oh no. I like Alton Towers. You would. Alton Towers yeah. is awesome. I like Alton Towers, but other theme parks are available. Canada's Wonderland. 
That was brilliant. Although I did go in 1993. Did you say <laughs> Cannabis Wonderland? No, Canada's Canada's oh, Wonderland. Canada sounds like the opposite of where Chris wants to go. <laughs> Los Angeles. Cannabis Wonderland. Can you imagine how fast those rides would go? Oh my God! Please start, take up weed, Chris. Uh, what an amazing experiment. I think it would end the very badly. Would actually go very very slowly. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> Lots think, of pretty yeah. colours. <laughs> uh, oh wow! Uh, should we talk about De Niro? And 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 Murray Franklin and Murray. 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 What I like in this is that tip, typically the De Niro face is a sort of frowny downwards, sort of like a like a an upside like a, down smile. Is like a, played Iron Man. Sorry, <laughs> frowny downwards. <laughs> I think he should win an Oscar. Um, I love Frowny Downwards Junior. He was so good. After he got out of that controversial point in his career, he's really turned things around. Um, but in this film. De Niro's turned his classic De Niro look into a like like a slightly sidewaysy mouth, which I thought was just quite an interesting. Now change. that's acting, <laughs> yeah. Well, that's, like, did you just when, do a whole bit on his mouth? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I was thinking of doing frowny so, downwards, but I'm going to do sideways. Usually, hey. usually he's frowny downwards. What are you and then talking in this about? One, are you having an episode? <laughs> I, I thought this do podcast was us? just a delusion in my head. <laughs> Look at pictures of De Niro in this. He's got no. like a squinty sideways People mouth. are finally starting to take notice of Ben Travis. <laughs> this is my time. I'm going to inspire a generation. Frowny downwards. To wear, I don't know, like haunting. geeky glasses or... God, oh, please, oh, fr- my baby. <laughs> Frowny downwards and crispy Evans as <laughs> Terry's baby's first words. <laughs> oh, fr- Frowny downwards. No. no. That's amazing. So, yeah. Does someone have something more insightful to say about Robert uh, how, could, how could anyone how could possibly follow that? Yeah. If you look at his career, you see in this graph, he has been doing a frowny downwards in 75.3% of his movies. But True. in this movie, he does a sidey slide slide. Yes? My sidey point, slide slide. Precisely. Exactly. What are you talking about? His mouth look. is a delusion. <laughs> look at the pictures, find the evidence. Anyway, my point was, I think he's horribly miscast. So, discuss that. <laughs> I know, I agree. and I. Uh, but I think, like I was saying, I think the only reason he is cast is because of those films that this film is inspired by. I don't, as much as we love the, the god that is Robert De Niro, I don't think he has the natural charisma for a talk show host. Yeah, but I could believe, easily believe that an old white man could like linger yeah. in a talk show for a long, long time before anyone comes to replace him. I <clears throat> agree with Ben. I think there's a slightly jaded, like tired mm. kind of um, air about him that I could totally buy for a, a late night TV host who's clearly been out for years and, you know, has lost yeah. his, his passion and sees Arthur, if you believe everything that happened, and his terrible stand-up as kind of a, a, a way to have a moment and then to get him on the show. And you can see the cynicism that mm. is behind his decision to do so. It, it, it felt deliberate to me, that stuff. The kind of lack of almost lack of charm and sparkle okay that's interesting it was it was deliberately uh bad okay i like that no, deliberately it's, it's miscast <laughs> yeah um deliberately uh, accurately miscast uh but i think he's genuinely good in that scene with arthur at the end uh, where they're actually where getting a, shot a in the face well yeah that's that was that's my favorite bit special sleep but um <laughs> <laughs> i i liked the exchange they had where you slowly saw again him beginning to set aside his artifice and 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 the big talk show host act mm. and just kind of go, hey, you're a fucking mook, yeah. you know, kind of thing. 
I thought that was interesting. The, my my one big problem with the film, the one thing that I instantly hated was was that the line, the speech, the the sort of oh, this is oh, what do you this you get what you deserve, loner with a gun. It's like that was that was so on the nose. Considering the rest of the film is very sort of ambiguous and playing in sort of shades, and he's of not been articulate at all. At any point, when he goes on stage, when he's when he's yeah. as a stand up, he has to look at his notes mm-hmm. and he struggles to articulate himself. And uh, here. And I realize the irony of this sentence falling apart instantly after I said that. But here, he's suddenly, boom, he's like... I agree. With, I think there are absolutely inconsistencies in Arthur's articulacy. And, and you know why that is? Because it's the delusion. Fantasy! Yeah, but, but also I think the fact that there is that line at the end is because by that point, the film has gone into iconic mythology status. Mm. It gets bigger, it gets broader. He's the Joker now. And I think the, the, t- the tone changes to yeah. suit it. Yeah. But I think that's why he's more articulate because he is he's becoming increasingly like the Joker we know. He feels who is free. more articulate and he feels confident and he feels yeah. but that I have to say that line still rankled with me because mm-hmm. I was like don't make it that easy for everybody. You literally go, oh, this is what happens when you ignore the white man. It's I mean, like, he, he literally, we didn't literally say that, but basically. It is that. jarring because it's a movie, movie line. <laughs> it is. And and it's also one of those things where it's like, I get it. I've just been watching yeah. the film. That you make, like, you, you don't have to try and, the, the more you try and sum it up in this one line, the more it kind of cheapens all of the work that you've put into that so far. It's again with the thing when they reveal that, that Zazie Beats isn't, hasn't been real the whole time and it literally shows you those scenes again it's like no I, I get it I get it by the fact that she's walked into the apartment she's like oh my god who are you you don't need to literally then intercut those scenes back in without her but maybe he there. would maybe he wants to say something kind of corny at that point as well yeah. he's on a talk show and he's mm. he's he's idolised this guy who's full of corny cheese but one liners maybe that sort of suits what he's, he's going he's bringing for. that artifice to it maybe mm. mm-hmm very serious question here from at Ray of the Books who asks as a mental health professional I found the linking of mental illness to violence a cheap way to explain his actions thoughts yeah I mean I I completely see that that is an issue with the film I think it's also an issue in a lot of cinema this sort of uh, conflation of mental illness and a propensity for violence because actually the real stats and figures show that it's kind of the opposite yeah that that people who have these greater mental health issues are actually much more vulnerable and much more at risk of other people causing violence to them than causing violence to other people so i think it's partly playing into this long sort of tradition in cinema that we probably need to try and move past at some point of of people who have mental mental illnesses being seen as sort of potentially violent dangerous people Mm. but also it's it's this character, it, it it does sort of feel kind of believable for this character that mm. he it's not just that he has a mental illness, it's that mm-hmm. he is pushed over the edge, that people are horrible to him all the time, that he is repeatedly abused by other people and that the initial spark of violence is his retaliation to that when other people are physically abusing him. Yeah, But I, I, I do get that that... It just, it's something that, that bothers me in... There's been a few films recently that I've I've just thought there's so much stigma around um, people with mental health issues and then mm-hmm. them mm-hmm. being depicted as the baddies, as sort of people who commit violence, that it's just a trope that you shouldn't not use it, but it would be great to have a lot of other examples to vastly outweigh that being the predominant mm. sort of representation of, of people with those issues on screen. The same accusations were leveled against uh, Split, James McAvoy's character. Yes, mm. that was one that I was that I was thinking of that I get 
takes place on a sort of heightened plane, but that people with um, dissociative disorder, yeah. it's like, yeah, we don't really need another film that says, oh, these people could be violent. Oh, what if all your personalities were killers? And mm. Aren't they very careful? Isn't Todd Phillips very careful not to kind of name a specific mental illness or mm. condition so they say at one point he's on seven different types of medication mm-hmm. obviously what you do say is the collapse of mental health services obviously one of the first meetings is the social worker saying that support is going to be taken away he's not going to be able to get his meds mm. um i think it's important that they didn't specify a real life yeah. mental health issue but i think part of the kind of story of how a man could end up here I, I didn't see it as you are committing violence because you're mentally ill that's not how I interpreted it in this mm. film as well that his gr- gradual kind of disintegration and his dissociation from the world and yeah. from any sense of self that he ever had is kind of what what put him on that path or allowed him to continue down that path as opposed to anyone with a mental illness has a propensity to go out and yeah, kill somebody it's not that simplistic just a couple of last questions. Uh, Chris Delby, at Brewery underscore Chris on Twitter, asks, the film seems to be aiming at lots of things, the rich, poor, divide, government cuts, and sympathetic carrying, uncaring, rich and poor people, etc. Do you think that Arthur being the victim of all these things takes responsibility away from him when he kills? And do you think they allow him to own his villainy fully, or do they want us to feel it's inevitable due to his treatment? I think they are very clear about his lack of remorse and how that's not okay. So there's one particular scene where he says, you know, oh, I did something and I thought I'd feel bad, but I actually don't. And I think it becomes clear that he's operating not within a normal human response in terms of guilt and remorse and all those things. So I think once you're there, you're kind of, you know, I don't feel like it's justified or there's excuses or there's context that makes it all right. I think you're aware he's gone to a very bad, dark, inexcusable place. Mm. He just becomes an absolutely demonic, terrible person. I I mean, I don't think it absolves him of of, um, responsibility at all. Like so many people are affected by these issues and don't turn to, to those violent outbursts. But I think... That's what makes that's what's stirred up a lot of the controversy and makes people uncomfortable is that it's shining a light on actually very real things that we need to address, which are availability of guns and um, sort of making sure that mental health uh, provisions are properly funded, that people are able to get help when they need it. And it's made very explicit at the start that the help that he is getting, minimal as it is, is going to be taken away from him. Mm-hmm. Um, but I don't think that that means that you can't have this character also has to take responsibility for his actions and mm. that you you can be sort of sympathetic to the plight that he is facing while also not condoning what he does. And yeah. I think that's not out of the realms of possibility for yeah. people to do. It's not as... Mm-hmm. It, that's, yeah, things can be more than one thing. Okay. Uh, the Chef Insider at The Chef Insider asks, can you rank Joker performances? <laughs> Sorry, can we just go back? You say The Chef Inside Her. No, not... The, no, the, oh, God. Hang on, let me just double check this. <laughs> Otherwise, I'm definitely eating at this person's restaurant. Um, <laughs> I bet you won't. You'll be eating out. Oh, <laughs> dear. Oh, dear. <laughs> oh, God, I was so pleased with myself then. Oh, my God. <laughs> It's all for you, Chris. Oh, dear Lord. It's all for you, Damien. Oh, dear. Uh, yes, the chef insider. Oh, uh, no H. No. Okay. Okay. Can you rank Joker performances? If we have to. Yes, no. we have to. This is, the, this is the whole point of these podcasts. Let's get it out of the way. Jared Leto's on the bottom. It depends. And that's never felt more apparent than in a post 
He's uh, below Cesar Romero. That's <laughs> I love Cesar Romero. It depends what you're. It depends how you're ranking them. They're, well, in order, they're all serving complete, Thanks. They're all serving completely different purposes in completely different time periods. I don't really love all of them except for Jared Leto. Oh, poor Jared Leto with his millions and his rock star following and his good looks and his uh, seemingly inability to age and and uh, and the musical ability and all sorts of stuff. I just don't see how you could pit Heath Ledger against Joaquin Phoenix. I mean, I think they are the same character in name only. Yes, I completely agree. Yeah, suck that, the chef insider. Yeah, get out of her. Yeah. <laughs> oh, come on, man! You've 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 ruined this podcast with your mucky mind. It's it disgraceful. Was the chef. Okay, uh, but we won't be playing your sick games. But uh, obviously, to me? it's Heath Ledger. <laughs> You're talking about Joaquin me? Phoenix, Mark Hamill, Jack Nicholson, Mark Hamill. Caesar Romero, and the other one. But like. Very, all joint number one, apart from Jared Leto, who's <laughs> <laughs> very much number six. And then the very, very last one and uh, is from, was the first one I got sent, from at something Jones. Do you think there's any potential for Joaquin's Joker to appear in the Robert Pattinson Batman no. movie? If nope. not, should they recast the Joker or just not include him at all? And that'll spiral into my last question, which is what's next? What's next for what? Joker, the this series of movies. Do you think this will inspire? Not a series. I, I would I would put how much has it made? Seven hundred and fifty million dollars. So therefore, I think it will be a series. No, and I don't next think one so. Will be I don't think so. Penguin. I, th- I think it might launch this DC Black thing that yeah. Toffolitz yep. was talking about because there's obviously money in this direction. But um, I just don't think there could or should be a sequel to this. And I can't see. I mean, what would it be? Then what? It will. Ha- if is he going to be fighting Batman? 30 years down the line what is it I can't see Joaquin Phoenix agreeing to do that I think the whole reason he signed up for this is it's a one and done yeah. it's a really interesting acting challenge there are rumours strong rumours that he was offered the uh, Doctor Strange gig and he turned it down because he doesn't want to commit to that sort of multi he doesn't want to turn up for five minutes in ten people's other films yeah or, or, or even just have that thing where it's 2023 Joaquin oh, I'd like to do this independent film with Lynn Ramsey well you can't because you're booked mm. up for four months because you're yeah, doing Doctor Strange 3 there's no way yeah I don't think Todd Phillips would I think he's interested in kind of further iterations of this kind of film and this kind of disruption would he want to make a Joker sequel I just can't see it I would imagine if if this DC black thing that he uh, conceived might happen I can imagine Todd Phillips being maybe an executive producer of some other films but not doing another Joker one I mean, if they want to do that, then they've sort of earned the right to at this point. In, yeah. Like, at least going, we're just going to make a Joker film that is unconnected to everything, and now that it's done well and that there's clearly an appetite for it, they might think about other interpretations that they might want to do, and, and who knows, that could be interesting. Well, that's the question. But, who but, would it be? What would be next in this series? Um, Poison Ivy, and she's a gardener who is <laughs> mad about... Charlie Dimmick is Poison Ivy. <laughs> <laughs> just go for that penguin a disgruntled umbrella salesman <laughs> flips out when yeah, the zoo yeah you could even do another Joker film down the line couldn't you with a different you know everyone it's like that famous Andy Warhol quote in the future everyone will play the Joker for 15 minutes <laughs> so who knows maybe I'll get my go <laughs> Jared, Jared Leto played him for literally about 15 minutes <laughs> he really did by the way we praised Wacky Phoenix as acting and quite rightly so but my god how much effort did he put into that laugh that looks mm-hmm. it painful painful 
I, I think wow. that's, that the laughs uh, the, that he does are, are amazing. The sort of like the it's, he's laughing, but he's screaming. You can see that he's screaming, but you also completely get from his point of view that he can't stop it, and he's desperately trying to stop mm. it. But to other people, of course, he's just this like mad dude who's cackling <laughs> on the bus. Who, if you live in a big city, you avoid those people because you yeah. don't you don't want to put yourself in a position of potentially being vulnerable. Yeah. But his mm. eyes, his yeah. eyes in every single shot where he's laughing is just astonishing because mm. exactly that you can see the pain and the agony yeah oh, it's when he goes <gasps> you know he's doing that oh mm. god it's awful and he's yeah. just he's struggling for breath the um, only thing that slightly undermines it is that edit that somebody's already done putting <laughs> uh, seth rogan's big stoner <laughs> yeah. laugh yes. under or, it that, <gasps> or ricky gervais <laughs> or yeah someone did a peewee homo one as well <laughs> oh no that's not good that's not good uh, and on that note a good note on which to end our very very special joker spoiler special podcast uh, as ever the regular Emperor podcast is available every single Friday uh, if you don't already subscribe then please do it's available wherever you cast your pods and if you can leave us lovely five star reviews on iTunes then every little bit helps so that would be great thank you very much indeed keep and peeled as well for interview specials coming your way there's one up right now uh, with uh, Michael Cicchino and David Arnold which is well worth your time very very funny stuff from them they're great uh, and we have a special Bruce Springsteen uh, special I stop saying special <laughs> we have a Bruce Springsteen special coming up uh, that's going to be out on Friday October 25th as well where Ben and I sat down with the boss himself Bruce motherfucking Springsteen and that is well worth your time also and just keeping people for spoiler specials as well coming up uh, We I know for a fact that we're going to do one for Knives Out with Ryan Johnson because that's recorded and in the bag so thank you so much for listening and thank you of course to the co-writer of Empire's cover feature Alex Godfrey Goodbye. Oh, I forgot to punch out. (laughs) (laughs) I'm not. I'm not punch the microphone. And it's thank you and goodbye to the other co-writer of Empire's cover feature, Alex Godfrey. Hi, how you doing? (laughs) Where are we? (laughs) And it's goodbye from Ben Travis. Do you want to see me make this pencil disappear? <laughs> I, I will point out I'm actually holding a pencil and I never usually have a pencil on me. No, no, I don't. I don't want you to do that. Did no, you bring the pencils for that joke? No, I made it. I brought it so that it looked like I might be making notes and then I've made no notes through this podcast. Why would you, quite frankly? Um, the only note says, um, what was it? Frowny. Frowny downwards, <laughs> frowny Junior. Downwards. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> junior. <laughs> I like that it implies that there's a frowny downwards senior. Oh, yeah. The the Frowny Downwards franchise. Yeah. Uh, It's goodbye from Terry White. I'm calling my baby Frowny Downwards. (laughs) (laughs) If you don't, there's something seriously wrong. Downwards Frowny? (laughs) No, Frowny Downwards. Frowny Downwards. Frowny Downwards. Downwards Frowny. (laughs) Junior. And it's goodbye from me. I'm off to watch a Charlie Chaplin movie and remain stony-faced, as is the correct thing to do throughout. Fairly not, I'm off for some special sleep. Special sleep. Now we will all do special sleep. Thank you for listening. Goodbye. See you next time. Bye. Bye.